Heavy Cardboard, Episode 126, Great Western Trail. Coming to you from the Cow Pass of Boston, Massachusetts, welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, train games, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts. I'm Edward. And I'm Evan. All right. So welcome to the podcast, Evan. Thanks. Good to be here. Long time listener, yeah. first time caller. <laughs> so tell folks a little bit about uh, your gaming experience, favorite games, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Okay. So I am just your average Joe uh, hobbyist gamer. I don't have a podcast. I don't have a YouTube channel. I don't even blog. Um, but I do post quite a bit on BGG. I'm sure there's quite a few people that are members of the herd and on Slack that, that see me post there frequently. Um, gaming experience. So uh, like most people that you've had on the show, I've gamed my entire life. Uh, my parents divorced when I was young. My mom raised me and she was a gamer. We played a lot of like weird stuff, Ch- uh, Chinese checkers, Parcheesi, backgammon. I didn't play Monopoly or Sorry or those kind of games, uh, you know, um, Candyland or any of that stuff growing up. But we played a lot of those games, Quadominoes, Uno. So I've been kind of in a gaming family my whole life. I'm an only child, so I didn't have a chance to play like some of the cool multiplayer games that some of my friends had, like Mousetrap. <laughs> Right. Oh, speaking of which, I have a 1963 version of Mousetrap up in my bedroom. I kid you not. Really? So one of my favorites as a kid. I would go over to my friend's house and be so jealous if they had that. I just wanted to play around with it because it was like this. It was a game, but it was also a toy. So it's like met the best of both worlds, if that makes any sense. 100% agree with that. Yes. So um, I, I played board games with my mom for a long time until I got to be about 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that range when I fell in love with video games. And I video gamed my like pretty much my entire life until I was in my early 40s. I used to listen to a podcast called DLC. It's a video game focused podcast. And the host, Jeff Kanata, he's a board gamer. He was actually a special guest at BGG Con a couple of years ago. He used to do a segment on the show called Tabletop Time where he'd carve out five or ten minutes to talk about board games. And at first I was like, what is this? Like, I mean, there's so much cool stuff to talk about in the video game world. Why is he talking about this stuff? And then something must have – he must have wore down on me and caught you know caught me on a bad moment. And um, I think I picked up Splendor at his recommendation. And that's a game that really kind of gatewayed me into what we we do today. Um, I still love Splendor. I know that sounds weird. It's um, it, it's really what got me into the hobby because I was playing it one day and believe it or not, I had a rules question and you know, there's like four rules in the whole game, right? But so I Googled because uh, I couldn't see it in the book, um, you know, how to do whatever I was looking for. And the first link on Google was BGG. And I opened it and I was like, holy hell, what is this? Um, you know, I, I, I'm a very analytical person by nature and BGG is a big database, right? So right. It, all it led to was this huge rabbit hole of what's this game? What's that game? So before you know it, I'm in the top 100 going, oh, I never heard of this. What is this? This looks so cool. And the rest, as they say, is history. I've been kind of ingrained in the hobby ever since. And I don't think I've touched a video game other than a couple minutes here and there for the last three or four years, even though my kids play quite a bit. Yeah, that sounds a lot like me as far as the video game stuff. I played Event uh, Horizon Dawn event, something or other. Horizon Zero Dawn. That's it. Thank you. Uh, I played that for a few hours, but outside of that, I have found that I... 
don't have the love affair with video games since I really got into this hobby really strong about six years ago. So I can definitely relate on that note. So and I still love video games. I still play them. I'm kind of overstating things. And those are the kind of games I love, like the Skyrims, the the big exactly, op- the yes. open RPGs. But the problem is the time I would put into those kind of games takes me away from reading rule books and playing board games. And so I'm not a fan of the like five minute in and out games. I have to be, you know, like Red Dead Redemption kind of stuff. Right. Something I want it to suck me in and or, you know, fall out or something like that to where it's going to be a massive time sink in a good way. But I want to lose myself in a video game. And honestly, it's funny. You and I have a similarity as far as video game likes, as far as those deep, immersive kind of RPG esque games to where honestly, that's why a game like Gloomhaven didn't really, while I can appreciate it, why it didn't really grab me, because if I want to play a game that is that type of epic RPG style game, I tend to go towards a a video game, whether it's Fallout, Skyrim, uh, Oblivion, you know, that type thing. Bethesda basically is what I'm saying. For sure. Those are exactly the kind of games that I like too. I put 200 hours into Fallout and even way more into Skyrim and, and Oblivion. Exactly. Yep. So what are some of your favorite tabletop games? Yeah, so um, I like things that are a little bit interactive, but I'm hardcore Euro guy. Um, You know, on the Slack, there's tons of people who are into 18xx and some of the uh, the Phil Eklund games. I've never really gotten into that. Um, I'm into stuff like Dominant Species, uh, Wildcatters, Brass, where there's a lot of piggybacking in the game, but at, at its core, it's still a hardcore Euro game. I've, I've fallen in love in 2018 with Gaia Project. I've gotten back into Clans of Caledonia because it's kind of like a more accessible type of Gaia Project. So it's, those right. a, those a, it's like those efficiency optimization puzzles with players that can kind of mess with your plans. That's kind of the secret sauce for me. Well, um, we, we kind of nailed it then with Great Western Trail tonight. So this should be this should be interesting. This should be a good discussion. It should be. But I think a lot of people mislabel Great Western Trail as not player interactive. So we'll get into that quite a bit. Yeah, I'm excited about that, actually, because we're going to be coming at this from two different points of view. You being far, far more experienced with the game than I am. So, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I can never tire of talking about this game. There's a long-standing rumor that the roads in Boston are as big of a topographical mess as they are due to covering old cow paths. And while it's unlikely to be true, driving in this town is just comical. Uh, the street quote-unquote plan is a screw you to unwelcome visitors, be they Redcoats during the Revolution or Yankees fans on game day at Fenway. Either way, it's always an adventure driving in this town, and I was reminded of it here not too long ago driving down into Cambridge. There was a roundabout, or as they're called here locally, rotaries, with stop signs and stoplights in the middle of a roundabout. And I'm like, wait what? And then there was, there's one intersection in Boston. And I talked about this, uh, when Jess, uh, guest hosted with me, there's one intersection. I think it's also in Cambridge to where it's like a seven way intersection and there's really no stop signs or stop lights. It's just Godspeed and go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just, this place is crazy. Have you ever driven? Have you ever been to Boston? 
So I'm originally from Hartford, Connecticut. I have tons of friends in Boston. I've gone up there a million times. Um, in fact, I was just there a couple months ago. Uh, funny story, um, I got into Providence College when I was 17 years old or whatever, and I drove up to Providence, which is a mini Boston, really. Um, and I it was pre-GPS, pre-cell phones. I mean, this is, we're talking 1990 or 89 and I actually couldn't find the, the college because everything was a one-way street. And I could see it like, oh, I can see it. And I'm pointing to it, but I could never actually get to it. And I got so frustrated that I just went home. And I ended up going to the University of Rhode Island instead. So, yes, I'm very familiar. <laughs> I'm very familiar with how Boston is laid out in New England in general. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's still taking some getting used to. I'm, I'm actually, I'm enjoying it. The people across the board have been really warm and welcoming and that has still held for the last what now four months or so that i've been here it's been it's been really good but yeah the the layout of the roads just oof i mm. yeah and they're so narrow there you can't park my friends used to have apartments and i would go visit and i'd be i'd have to park like a mile away and walk back in the snow i'm like this is ridiculous who would want to even live here yeah, there there are certain roads that you can only park on certain sides of the street and only certain times of day. And God forbid there's a snow emergency, then you can't park there. And yeah, it's it's a it's been a learning experience, but you know, eh. I've come to appreciate it so far. I've definitely come to appreciate Boston for other things as I get older, like the culture, the history, the food. Uh, there's a lot. At first, I hated the city growing up, but I've I've grown to like it over time. And that's exactly where I'm getting. Uh, the 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 accent is still jarring to me. It's still it's not something that I am accustomed to. Every time I leave the house, I get surprised when I talk to somebody around here. But that said, I think it really has been a huge misnomer that everybody up here is rude or fill in the right words. It's just the accent is very gruff. And the attitude can be a bit gruff, but they're extremely warm and welcoming. So it's been it's been really pleasant. It's been really good. Unless you go to Gillette Stadium wearing an opposing opposing team's jersey. I'm I'm looking forward to going checking out the the sports teams, although I will say going to the Bruins games, I will only go when the Canucks are in town and I will be that guy. I will be, you know, the opposing fan there. But honestly, I'm looking forward to going checking out Fenway. Uh, my Reds are supposed to be coming to town this year, so I'm looking forward to that. But I would like to go to a game in which I can actually root for the home team. So I'm not that guy all the time everywhere I go. So yeah. that'd be nice. I've been to 25 of the 30 Major League Parks and Fenway is number two for me. Oh, and, wow, and, I really? hate, and I hate the Red Sox. So that's how good wow. it is. Right, I'm, I'm, dude, I'm super, super, I've seen the outside of it. It's, I've it's, driven past it a few times. It's a great, can't ex, wait. it's a great experience. Yawkey way, the whole outside of it, the vibe you get, the history, the history, the nostalgia. Uh, I'm biased because I lived in Chicago for five years. And for me, Wrigley's number one, because Wrigley's, the, I was going to assume, but I was going to ask, okay. I mean, Wrigley's been past Wrigley. It's the same exact vibe in Chicago, uh, just on a grandiose, more grandiose scale because you have. Addison and Sheffield and all, and there's so many bars. I mean, Wrigleyville, just the yes. whole town, kind of the neighborhood right there, right? And they've, they've made it now with the, the Ricketts owning the team. They've made it so much bigger than it was before and and not as seedy and, and dirty. You know, it's, it's actually a more family friendly now. It's great. 
And I'll be honest, the Cubs are one of my most hated teams in all of sports, but I can't wait to go to Wrigley because it's Wrigley. Oh, God. It's, it's amazing. I mean, you might have cement fall on your head, but it's still amazing. <laughs> awesome. So I debated whether or not talking about any more poker after last episode, but I've been on this. I've learned that if I take a day off or if I take half a day off and I make the 90 minute drive to go play some cards, it really helps me decompress and helps me get away from the show and get away from this because now that I do it full time, it can be all encompassing, especially in the winter. We had eight inches of snow here and there were a couple days that I just didn't leave the house because... I don't want to go out in that if I don't have to. And so I'm completely surrounded by the show 24-7. And so getting a mental break away from that poker is is kind of my respite from that. And I went and played the other night after a really good session that I had a couple weeks ago. And I ended up being able to play one orbit, meaning I played about six hands. I made 130 bucks and had to turn around due to some stuff that came up. And so I made a three hour drive for six hands of poker, made 130 bucks, turned around, came back, went up the next day because I was like, yeah, that, that, that's not enough after taking care of everything for the live stream and, and doing all that stuff. I went back up there and I played for about five hours and had something happen that had never happened before. Literally the first hand I sat down. Uh, I didn't have to post. I came in in the uh, in the cutoff and looked down at Pocket Kings. I get it all in on the turn, and I I ended up flopping a set of kings, and I doubled up on my very first hand with Pocket King. It never never happened in <laughs> the twenty three twenty four years I've been playing poker at casinos and online. Never never had that happen. That's and awesome. So, yeah, that was that was pretty surreal. And uh, fast forward about four or five hours, um, treading water since that hand for the most part, and ran into a spot where I don't mind losing if I get it all in as a four to one favorite, or if and I just get unlucky, or I get outplayed, or something like that. I can I can deal with that. That's I'm not going to beat myself up too bad about that. That's just going to happen. However, when I make what is a clear mistake, I don't care the amount of money that it costs me, whether from money I didn't win or money I lost. It It's really hard for me to be easy on myself because of that. And there was one instance of that to where I got bluffed off the best hand uh, with pocket kings in which the same hand I could have changed the result at three different points in a hand and all three different times I made the wrong decision. So I only made one mistake, but it could have been resolved in one of three places and it didn't. And I ended up laying down a hand that is clearly a hand that I should have played differently that still I'm beating myself up over. And that was three days ago and I'm just, I'm angry at myself because Mm -hmm. of it. And so I guarantee that I won't be put in that position again, 
and I, I've told the story a whole bunch that originally board games interested me and they scratched and still do scratch a similar itch to poker in that that competition of decision making. And if you make better decisions than I do over the course of a game, you're going to win. And that's why we prefer low randomness, low luck type games. And so the fact that now and here in June, I have a casino, the Encore, the Win Encore opening up that's 15 minutes away. Looking forward to that. And I have no interest in going and playing in the pit, blackjack, craps, all that stuff. Simply poker, but I used to play professionally. So it's kind of it's kind of in my blood at this point. So it's a good, good diversion for me. It's a good way to decompress and exercise my brain, but in a similar but different way as well. And it's 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 a way for me to be social as well, which is something that I need on occasion, especially, you know, when there's not going to conventions, this and that. Um, it's a good way for me to be able to do that as well with, with random people out there. So, so yeah, it was, a it was a learning lesson there, but overall had a good time. And there's your, your, uh, episode poker update, I guess would be a good way to put it. <laughs> All right, so getting back onto gaming, uh, the Game of the Month series, if you have not heard, uh, I have started up a Game of the Month series, which what this is, is mostly featured on YouTube, but however, it does affect the podcast in that this Game of the Month, we're going to take a game in this month, this month being January, to completely dissect a game in a sense that uh, setup video, first impressions, unboxing, full teach, full playthrough, roundtable discussion, and going to be a podcast review of that game. And Space Corp being that game this month, it's been pretty well received. And I'm excited about seeing where this this series goes. And doing it once a month, I have learned that the uh, video editing and, and voiceovering for the setup videos and all this is, is a time-intensive process. But it's something that I think people seem to be enjoying so far. And I'm excited to bring the podcast involved in this because I want to bring the first impressions, uh, since that's essentially all audio anyways, bring that over to the podcast next week. And then also, obviously, the review itself will be on the podcast. So looking forward to seeing how this is received and see how people like this, uh, this new format in, in addition to all the other content that has been going on. Well, you got a lot of views for the unboxing. I, God bless people. I'm glad people enjoy that. But I, I, you know, I got to be honest. I've been guilty of watching them from time to time as well, because I'm curious. Sometimes you get a game and you're like, oh, I thought the box was going to be bigger or smaller than this or whatever. And it's always interesting to see the contents, I guess. But the the first impressions has gone well the the live stream went well and hopefully folks enjoy the uh the review i think the review is going to be a mixed bag because uh uh well i have mixed feelings on the game still so far anybody who watched the live stream would have probably gathered that yeah i think so all right so gaming wise what you been playing evan so i'm going to talk about um a little bit more of a distant play than some of my more recent plays, but you saw me at PAX U, right? So yep. you, were, you were teaching Root in the, in the breakout room there. 
And uh, a couple patrons of Heavy Cardboard and myself got together to play Wildcatters. So it was Jeff Packman and Dean Brandt and somebody who worked for Crowdox, the the Kickstarter uh, fulfillment uh, place. I forget what uh-huh. his name. I forget what his name was, but this was the first night of the con. It's a funny story. That's why I'm bringing it up. Um, I had no idea that Pax U stopped at midnight. And I'm used to going to heavy con, right? Where you're like, just close the door and lock up when you're done or dice tower <laughs> con where it's 24 seven. So we set up to play, what was it? 1030 when you saw me, we were like in the first round. I, I think so. Something like that. And I was like, wow, you guys are starting late. Huh? Yeah. Okay. I, so, right. so we're like maybe a round and a half, two rounds into the game and it's 1130. And one of the packs enforcers comes up to us and goes, you know, we're going to be closing the room at midnight. And I'm like, what? And, and he's like, yeah, we, we have to get you out of here by midnight. And I'm like, really? And, he, and I'm like, well, what are we going to do? We're only in the second round of the game. And for those who don't know, it's a seven round game that takes about three hours to play. And uh, he's like, well, listen, I just got to get you out of the room. That's all I have to do. Hint, hint, wink, wink. There's a hallway is what he was trying to get at. So we're like, what do, what do you mean by that? Can, he's like, well, just move the table into the hallway. Now, to set the table for everybody here, at PAXU, there's this long hallway down this corridor, right? And you, if you're at one end, you can see all the way down. It's like a mile long. But there are two like vestibules on the outside by where those rooms were that we were that if you were looking down the hallway, you can't see in those corners. So we move the table out into the hallway at midnight. They lock the room. At like 1230, we're about halfway through the game. A security guard walks by just to check the doors and they're all locked. Doesn't even know we're there because we're we're actually in the pitch dark now. I've got like a table lamp over over the game board. (laughs) This is dedication. (laughs) So we're playing the game and it's probably like the sixth or seventh round. We're almost done. We've got like three or four turns to go. And a security guard comes. It's two in the morning. And he's like, what are you guys doing here? And we're like, we're finishing our game. He goes, you are trespassing. <laughs> and he like wanted to arrest us. So he's like, listen, You're kidding me. No, I swear to God. He's like, you are not supposed to be here. The whole convention hall is closed. And he's like, this is what I'll do for you. I'll reopen the room. You can bring the table back in and the convention doesn't start till 10, but I'll let you in at eight and you can finish your game. So we got up early. We got through the security. We got back into the room and we finished and I think Jeff Packman won, but it was a hilarious story, I thought, until Andy Mesa talked to me a couple days later and said he got reamed out for it. So I'm going to publicly apologize for what we did that night. But uh, it was just a, a hilarious story. So, But it made for an amazing story, though. Yeah, so, it was great. Hey, kudos to the uh, security guard for for being a stand up dude for that as well. So that's yeah, cool. Good. He was he was All kind right. of a jerk at first, but then he he softened up and he was like, because we weren't giving him a hard time, you know. We're like, hey man. Well, I'm sure he was probably scared and freaked out. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa! I did not expect to see this. I mean, you should have seen it. We were in the pitch dark. Like you could all, we were like almost invisible, totally completely camouflaged. So, <laughs> so probably scared the hell out of him. <laughs> no doubt, for sure. Um, so, like everybody else, I've been playing. Tio Tawakin. Um, I got my first play of it in at Dice Tower Con with Amanda, Rainer Alfers from NSKN, and Dean Brandt again. So I play a lot with Dean, even though we live a thousand miles away from each other. Um, and I loved it at first. Uh, I played it, and I really had a good game that first game, and maybe it was the fact that I won and did so in such victorious fashion that I got enamored with the game and the dice mechanic involved with lining your dice up and powering them up. Mm-hmm. The second time I played it, I saw somebody like spam the technology area. And at that point, it made it more expensive for me to go in there. So I kind of picked my spots and it turns out it didn't matter. That person ran away with the game. 
And the third time I played it, I was like, okay, well, I've kind of got to go there early to give myself some efficiencies, did that, and won. And it was a more balanced play. But the more I play that game, the more tactical it feels. It feels like I'm always choosing the option that's the cheapest for me to do, i.e. nobody else has dice there and there's no cocoa costs. I still don't know long term if that's a game that's going to sit with me and be something I'm going to want to keep breaking off the shelves because it doesn't feel like I can execute what I want to do. In fact, I saw in this last play, somebody aligned two of their dice in that you know temple building area, and they were going to get their third die in to build three different parts of the pyramid. And one person moved in there before them to create all four different colored dice to be in that area, and they didn't have the cocoa to pay to go in there. And they were so frustrated that they had to move the dice out or the die out what they had been planning for like an hour to do almost, you know, and they, I could see they were totally frustrated. And to me, I, some people say that's a, a feature of the game, not a bug, but I just, I don't know. It just, the game hasn't really sat well with me. I haven't, I haven't encountered that uh, thus far. Um and this isn't to say that the game doesn't have its warts. I Hell, if you listened to last episode, you heard me uh, hammer my all-time highest ranked game in, in Through the Ages. So I'm not above doing that. But I haven't, I seem to be, even though it is also fairly point salady, um, and the game has, I, I take umbrage with the game, but in different ways. For me, the biggest thing is, I guess, what a good way to put it would be how fiddly it is in that every little thing, there are a lot of steps to every action that you take. And it's very easy to overlook one or two of those little steps. Like bumping the eclipse. Exactly. Either that or uh, advancing on the Avenue of the dead or advancing on for everything that you build for the temple, advancing on that track. And it's easy to overlook or forget one of those. So that would be a bigger concern or a bigger gripe to me in the game than what you're talking about. But that's not to say that just because I haven't seen it doesn't mean that isn't the case. It's definitely been a highly popular game, but I don't think it's perfect. So I would, I'm, I'm interesting to see what kind of legs it has long term. And I know NSKN has already announced a upcoming expansion for the game, which we're actually going to be able to show off the expansion ahead of everybody else, which I'm excited about uh, in a handful of months, we'll call it. So looking forward to that. But that said, it's supposed to be modular and et cetera, et cetera. But how much more does the game need? I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, I'm I'm definitely curious to see what kind of legs the game has. Well, I'm really looking forward to your review. I'm I'm interested to hear what you and your guest hosts have to say about it because I don't dislike the game. I like it quite a bit, but I keep going back and forth, and I I'm wondering if that's the bias of what kind of game I had during. You know, I won the last play, and I actually was soured on the game more. But uh, I I don't know. I just. Yeah, Ryan, who's going to be the guest host on that one, has actually said that he's going to have some uh, some negative uh, points to bring up about the game, which I think is important. So I'm looking forward to the discussion. Well, he would know. He, he demoed yeah, the game like a thousand times at PAX U. So 
And, and he did so at Gen Con. So if there's anybody that I feel like is going to be a perfect person to have as a guest host, it's going to be Ryan. So I'm really looking forward to that. For sure. So that's Teotihuacan. What else? So a couple more I'll mention. I, I keep getting Brass Birmingham to the table. My group loves and why it. why wouldn't you? I love it. Um, I've had some conversations on Slack with Siddharth, uh, another patron of the show, who uh, believes that there's more player interaction in Lancashire. And I won't disagree with that, but the puzzle of how you need to execute beer and where you're going to place it on the board so that you can pull it without anybody else pulling it from you, I find very intriguing. And I think that resonates with a lot of other players because if you look at some of the comments on BGG, a lot of people feel like it's an iteration and a refinement on brass to where maybe it just feels fresher or, but people seem to like it a little bit more. And I I don't know how that's going to play out over a long period of time. And I wonder, and I I have found the same as what you just described. And I wonder how much of that is cult of the new, you know, Oh, it, you know, brass Lancashire has been around gaming, uh, timeframe forever, but, and brass Birmingham is, you know, the, uh, you know, Johnny come lately. So it's the hotness, but I also think that kind of like what you said, that the new iteration, take it a, a, a Aegis theme esque map type thing to where it still feels like brass, but it very much is its own entity or, you know, another iteration in the 18 XX family to where, okay, it's familiar yet the Chrome or these other things are, even though most of it feels familiar, this is, it's its own animal. So I also curious to see what kind of legs that game is going to have. I mean, I would love if it went the age of stream route where you got different maps and like they almost did the Concordia thing with it, right? Uh, I think people would just eat that up because the system is fantastic. Um, I agree. And I got a chance to play that in London on a business trip about a month and a half ago with another heavy cardboard patron who posted on the Slack, hey, I want to play more of this. And I'm like, hey, can I play Brass Birmingham in London? Uh, I'm all for that. So that was kind of a cool story too. Uh, finally, I played Captains of the Gulf twice at PAXU, and I, I want to bring this up here because I think it's going to be relevant to the discussion of the expansion for Great Western Trails later on. Okay. And that and that is, um, I played it twice, and I played it with Bev Bryant, uh, Carmen Petruzzelli, and Jeff from the Longview podcast. And All right, uh, and Carmen being Game Surplus. Right? That's right, yep. yep. And, and Carmen beat us both times, and he kind of used the same strategy in both plays, And I tried to like duplicate what he did in his first play in the second play, but I couldn't draw the card. So people are unfamiliar with the game. It's a multi-use card game with pick up and deliver. And you can use the multi-use cards for either fishing or for upgrading your boat, et cetera, et cetera. And I couldn't get the upgrades that I needed to really do what I wanted to do. And I kind of vented online and I don't know if I vented on Twitter or whatever um, that I felt like the game, you it was too random in how the cards came out and what you what you got in your hand. Uh, and Jason Dinger, the designer, reached out to me on Twitter and we had a long conversation. And he was like, this is what you should have done. This is how I would have thwarted that. And man, he went above and beyond. That dude is amazing. And he really opened my eyes to like what the game had in it. That of course, two plays you're not going to realize. So when we talk sure. about when we talk about rails to the north in a little bit, I've played it four times, and we'll get into this. And at all player counts, that is still a very small sample size. So my thoughts have to be kind of caveated with that frame, that lens. That I, I haven't played it twenty times. I, I I've seen what I've seen, and I'm going to make my observations based on that. But 
games have so much more to offer than one or two plays. And I think people rate games on BDG based on their initial impressions without, you know, the veneer kind of wearing off if you play it multiple times. Oh, my favorite is, oh, this game is obviously broken or this card is obviously overpowered or underpowered. And they've played the game, you know, once, twice, a handful of times. And I do this for a living and I hesitate to do that even after, you know, six, seven, eight play. Uh, yeah. So, eh, you know, to each their own. But no, um, I think that's interesting that uh, and Dinger is is apt to do exactly as you just described. He's he's a pretty, uh, pretty good salt of the earth type guy. And that's obviously his baby. So I, I, I'm glad to hear that he took the time to do that and kept the game from what could have been a, eh, not really sure about this ex- experience. And now you're like, oh, okay, I see how much is here. Now let me dive into that. On the flip side of that, I wonder, is that something that you would have come to on your own had he not spelled it out? And is that going to be something that is not obvious to everyone as they play it so that the game might not shine as much as it could potentially because people don't see it? I don't know, obviously. but Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on if you're the guinea pig who buys the game. Uh, you're going to want to play it more to uncover, to peel back that onion. I, it wasn't my copy. And honestly, based on my first two plays, I probably would not have picked up a copy. But after conversing with Jason, man, it made me thirst to try it again. Okay. All right, cool. And the last thing I will bring up is I've been playing a crap ton of Arboretum. Uh, That thing has hit the table like amazing amounts of times. It's perfect for that 30 to 45 minute window when you're waiting for other people to finish a game. You've got some people coming and going and... You know, I've heard some divisive things about the art in the new edition. I think it looks great. Um, it plays fantastic. It's so smooth. I think the art in the new edition is fine, and I think I would enjoy it more if I didn't, if I wasn't familiar with the original edition. And I like that. And I don't know the the name for it, but like the the almost textbook uh, type drawing of you know this is what it truly looks like. You know, like it would be in a in a encyclopedia type drawing. Um, I like that, that aesthetic. And so I'm partial to the first edition, but you know what? I don't care what edition it is. It's still an amazing game. And I, and it has the single greatest tiebreaker in the history of gaming. Well, go never out, had a tie. If, oh, if tied, go out, plant, both of you plant a tree, come back in five years, whichever <laughs> tree is taller wins the game. I have not seen that in the rules. So I guess I should. Exactly. That, that is amazing. That is fantastic. That is kind of so, cool. Yeah, our, we actually just streamed Arboretum as a uh, lunchtime stream, and I think it does, and it plays great, in my opinion, at two, three, and four players. So, yeah, I, I think Arboretum is fantastic for what it is. And yourself, what have you been playing? Uh, a whole bunch of games, mostly either for the live streams or for the the podcast, obviously. Space Corp, obviously, we, we've get, been getting a lot of that played, and... So for those that don't know, Space Corp is divided into three eras and the games played out over on three different boards. And I got to say that I really enjoy the first two eras and the third era still feels like a glorified scoring round that it's just, oh, I'm doing this to gobble up victory points. And it feels like it, the race game kind of compiles upon itself or it, it, it piles onto itself to where if somebody 
draws well and and just is a little bit more efficient that they tend to be hard to overcome at that point and i think there's more randomness that plays a part in this than i would like in that length of game but it's still only a handful of plays in and i still want to play it solo and i also want to play it two player so so far um i don't dislike the game i haven't wanted those hours back spent playing the game but i thus far i have enjoyed the first two eras more than the third era thus far that's fair then played atten uh which is a fantastic little two-player uh abstract i think is a good way to put it <laughs> so this was this was an interesting experience because every time i have played at an early on when my first handful of plays i really didn't like the game but as i played it more i've enjoyed it more and more and played it with jess on the stream and she abhorred the game hated it just flat out just really did not like the game we were all participants in that <laughs> Yeah, it was it was an interesting experience, but no, I but I think that I think there's merit to showing a game that there are some people involved in the game truly do not like. Like Greg with Space Corp, he really did not like it, but I think the 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 post game thoughts and the roundtable discussion afterwards, I think bring uh bring delight both sides of the coin, and I think it's I think it it does the game justice when you're able to, when that happens to where you don't always have, I don't want to say sick offense because everyone's being honest in their feelings, but I think that being able to pre- provide negative sides or, or show off the imperfections or things that don't necessarily resonate with one another with, with a certain player. I think that, that there's a lot of merit to that. And I think that helps the listener or viewer be able to make a more informed decision because they see both sides of the coin. You know what I mean? Yep, absolutely. Uh, we got Keyflow uh, to the table a couple of times, and it's interesting that it was sold to me and presented to me as a better way to put it that it's Keyflower, but with drafting, card drafting instead of the auctions. And during the game and afterwards, we had uh, Martin Fowler in the game, and he brought up a really good analogy that, in my opinion, and in his, obviously, that the game shouldn't be compared to Keyflower. The, the game that Keyflow should be compared to is Seven Wonders, even though everything's going to feel familiar. If you're familiar with Keyflower, they're so completely different games that it's like comparing apples and giraffes that the comparison to Keyflow to Seven Wonders, however, is far more apt. And I thought that was a really, really good discussion on that. And ultimately, I think Keyflow was fine. But yeah, it's a game on a pile of games, in my opinion. I mean, I saw that um, discussion, that is, and that worries me because I love Keyflower, but I don't like Seven Wonders. So, Well, I'm- to be honest with you, Keyflow isn't going to replace... Key uh, Keyflower or Keyflow isn't going to replace Keyflower at all. It is a completely different animal, and it's it's more akin to a thinky filler. It's not, but it's closer to that type of game. Again, akin to a Seven Wonders than it is ever. 
going to be to a key flower. So keep that in mind. And if you like uh, drafting and tableau building and resource conversion and moving your resources around like you do in key flower, then I think there's going to be uh, a lot there that you're going to like and you only only interact with the player to your left and player to your right. So at higher player counts, the game really doesn't take any longer than it normally would. Uh regardless of the player count, because you're only interacting with the, your direct neighbors. So I think there's a place for it. I just don't know um, if the comparisons in general that most people are making are the right comparisons. Uh, well, somebody in my group got it. So it's just a matter of time before I get it to the table. Okay. Tale to walk in and Arboretum, which you mentioned, obviously great Western trail uh, outposts. So going way back a little bit to the 1990s here, although we played the 20th uh, anniversary edition, an outpost is really math the game. It really is a interesting uh, victory point purchasing game. And it's, it's about being able to, and it's a pure, not pure, but it's mostly an auction game. And it's all about being able to outplay the other players within the auctions to be able to get factories that generate revenue so that you then can invest that revenue into more factories, which are essentially victory points. And the first one to 75 wins. And it was, it was a really enjoyable game that I don't think I want to play more than once or twice a year. <laughs> a ringing endorsement if i've ever heard one yeah damning with faint praise i understand or a backhanded compliment if you will but it's true i enjoyed the game but i don't know that i'm ever going to want to play it a whole bunch like i i was reading through and somebody gave his review after 100 games of outpost and i'm like yeah that's never going to be me no so. I, for me that game is lignum where I, I i thirst to play it and then once i play it i'm like oh my god i feel like um um, I need to go to sleep for like 12 hours. So yeah, I, there's been a number of these games lately, actually for me. Uh, and the last one that I wanted to mention was obsession, which it's funny it, for folks, our age brings one of two things to mind, either the song from the eighties or the cologne, uh, from back in the day, back in the eighties and nineties. Uh, however, this is a Victorian England. And you are uh, trying to invite uh, prestigious guests to your estate and being able to build up your estate. And you have butlers, you have footmen, you have it's very, very Victorian in period, even though there is some anachronisms, inconsistencies throughout. But I got to say, enjoyed the game far more than I expected, first off, just because I had heard really good things, but I heard that the randomness in this game can be a really big turnoff to heavier gamers. And the designer actually reached out to me and said, Hey, uh, I heard that you're thinking about playing the game on the stream or reviewing it, whatnot. He said, I would recommend that you play the expert variant, which removes and mitigates a fair amount of the randomness. There still is going to be some of that in there. And so we did. And Everybody really enjoyed their plays of it so far, and we're going to be streaming that, well, I guess the day this releases. So if you're hearing this, go check it out. But yeah, Obsession. Um, enjoyed it. Looking forward to playing it more and looking forward to streaming it. So I had never heard of this game before you did the weekly look ahead. 
I was like, what? and then all these people are commenting on the stream. They're like, oh, that's so good. And I'm like, I've never even heard of this game. And I'm on BGG like nine hours a day. So, oh, and I'm, I'm, I, I, that used to be me less so now. However, I will say like, this was a Kickstarter apparently. And I was like, I never even heard of it. And I had heard of it in the last few conventions that I had gone to. And I was like, upset victorian Inc. upset really it's good yeah and then saw it at a weekend gathering and i saw maggie bot there and i was like hey maggie can i borrow the game because i would like to feature it on the show and she's like yeah totally just send it back to me she's she's out in seattle and so i'm like awesome so that's how we're able to do it so yeah i'm looking forward to showing this game off because of exactly what you just said the fact that Either there are those that know it and then it came out of left field for the rest of us. And I'm one of those left field folks. So looking forward to showing it off. Yeah. So am I. All right. As far as acquisitions, what do you got lately, sir? So this is going to be very short. Um, I made a new year's resolution to not really buy anything as I went hog wild last year. I, what I do, I tend to, uh, I go to about two or three conventions a year and I'll post a bunch of stuff for sale and I'll buy a bunch of stuff or trade for a bunch of stuff at the conventions because there's no shipping, right? So at right, PaxU, sure. I listed about 20 games that I don't... I mean, I'm a player. I'm not a collector. So if it's not hitting the table, even if it's a good game, I get rid of it. And I usually I have... I don't know how you do that. That makes me so uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I have... I have not had any regrets to this point. A couple tinges of like, oh, I kind of wish I had that game back for this one specific situation, but I realize those moments are fleeting, so it's not that big of a deal. But uh, on you though. Uh, at PaxU, I picked up um, Brussels eighteen ninety three. Have you streamed that? That that's something I would really like to see. Yeah, we did actually. Okay. Uh, we did. I believe we did that back in Denver. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I love that game. And so, and now I'm at a point in my gaming hobby career where I'm only picking up stuff I've played before. So I know it's good. And Brussels is oh, great. All right. Fair enough. Um, I picked up Yokohama, Clans of Caledonia, which I've been playing quite a, bo- a, a lot of lately. Uh, recently, I picked up Keeper, which I have not gotten a chance to play yet. And uh, Stevenson's Rocket. Um, now- Stevenson's Rocket is one that I would be interested in. Uh- in getting a copy of because I know it recently had the reprint and I I've yet to ever play it. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of grown on, um, Kinesia games lately and that one, you know, it kind of incorporates the little age of steam with Kinesia. And I, I mean, for me, that seems like I would really enjoy it. Um, one game I did not enjoy as much after a second play was Gugong. I played it at HeavyCon. I liked it. I backed it. Turned out the story has a good ending because it's so hot right now. I sold it for like twice what I backed it for. When we streamed this uh, way back in Denver, uh, Tony and I both agreed that we enjoyed the card mechanic in the game, but everything else about the game was eh. um, it was fine. There was nothing wrong with the game. The card mechanic was interesting, but the rest of it was blase. Uh, I mean, my issue with the game is I agree with you. The card mechanic is fantastic. It's the heart of the game, but it kind of wears in pretty easily because at the end of the day, it is a Euro game at heart, which means that when you've got decrees in this game or tech track like you have in Teotihuacan, if you don't go there early and establish your strategy right away, uh, you're going to lose. And so in my two plays, I've gone there, 
taken positions and certain things and just executed on them. And it, that's a game, same with Tio Tawakin, where if you go there later, not only are you not getting the benefit of doing it early in the game like other players, but you have to pay more to go there. Or in, in Tio Tawakin's case, you have to pay somebody else victory points. And so I just feel like that's a, a, a mechanic that I'm kind of souring on. I will say that the uh, the production quality of Gugong is, from everything I'm hearing, is top notch. I actually don't have a copy. I I only have the prototype, so I've heard that the the production quality is just amazing, but I haven't seen it yet. So the production quality is above and beyond what you've even heard. Um, it is on par or better than an Eagle Griffin Vitalis Serta Deluxe Edition. Nice. I, I feel like that's kind of the benchmark for top-of-the-line production quality, right? Sure. The tiles that they use there are like, in, I won't even say thick cardboard. They're like, I think a bullet would be stopped by them. Um, <laughs> and they have this like weird veneer on them where they where they don't feel like cardboard. They almost feel like those, you ever play Rising Sun with the tiles? It's Those, yeah, are, ob- yeah, yeah. those are obviously plastic, but it's kind of got a different feel to it. And, you know, the jade is these plastic marbly kind of things. And I mean, let's, it's the same artist for Gugong that does the art for Great Western Trail, which we're going to get into here in a bit. And that is not an overused style. Uh, Andreas Resch is not somebody who does a prolific number of board games. So I think people see that and it's, it's new to them. It's not Clemens Franz. It's not, you know what I'm saying? Michael Mendez or right. Yeah, I gotcha. Sure. Not to diminish what, they're doing because no, they do uh, amazing course. work, but I see what you're saying. It's not everywhere, right? Exactly. So I really, that's really all I've picked up. I haven't bought anything in 2019. I haven't kickstarted anything in 2019. I'm really not even intrigued by anything. And we'll talk about anticipating and hunting. There is a couple things that I'm hunting, but we'll get into that in a second. For acquisitions, that's, that's pretty much it. All right. For me, I got one really nice prototype and a couple of other games. The prototype is Race for the Chinese Zodiac, which on the surface normally wouldn't interest me terribly much, but it has two, well, really three really big things going for it as far as I'm concerned. First and foremost is Capstone Games, and I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt to Clay and the folks there and definitely willing to take a look at it. The second thing is it's from the same designers as Three Kingdoms Redux, uh, Christina and Yowster, a husband and wife uh, couple that designed Three Kingdoms Redux and also originally published it over at Starting Player, which is their company. And from a personal standpoint, TKR holds a sentimental place in my heart and always will be because it's the first ever review copy that was ever sent to us. And it was airship from the factory in China. And so, you know, say what you will, but yeah, I'm willing to give this a fair shake. And dare I say, I'm even a little biased to want to like it, which I try not to be just because of, I try and stay as impartial as possible leading into a game. I mean, I'm human, let's face it, but on this one, yeah, I'm inclined to want to like it. So I'm hoping. So I, it's going to be on, it's on the schedule for next week to live stream it, to show it off. And I'm just, I'm, I'm looking forward to playing it this weekend. TKR is a fantastic game marred only by the fact that it's three player only, but it does it perfectly. I would argue. And yeah, TKR is so good. It really is. Damn it. Now I want to play that. All right. 
The other two <laughs> that I've uh, that I've picked up, uh, Victory and Gar and Glory. I'm sorry, Victory and Glory. Napoleon. It's a two-player kind of dudes on a map, two-hour war game. It's on the lighter side of things, but I'll be honest, I had never heard of this except one of the folks over at Forbidden Games reached out to me and said, "Hey, would you be interested in checking this game out from Glen Drover?" And it's a, a bit of an older game. It's not old by any stretch, but it's an and I was like, "Let me look it up." So I did a little a little researching on it and I was like, "You know, for a lighter war game, looks pretty interesting." So I'm um, that just arrived today, so looking forward to digging into that. It comes in a really big box. <laughs> Not Gloomhaven big, but it's a big box. All right, the last game that I got, I actually got uh, about a month, five weeks ago or so. And the reason I didn't talk about it is because it's in Japanese and I can't I can't tell you what the name is. So finally, leading up to this, I, I was able to find the game online i knew it was hobby japan and i knew what the front of the box looked like but i can't read it because i don't read japanese come to find out it i searched by number of owners but in the reverse order and it was like on the third or fourth page from the end so i figure it would be kind of obscure it's called tataraba in forest i won this in a in a giveaway and i was like oh it's japanese it looks obscure I'll try that because everything else looked kind of ho-hum to me. So I'm going to read you a little bit that somebody has written in the uh, comments section would, of the Would game. that somebody be Rand? It, you know, that was my thought. Like, if I could not find this, I was going to just be like, Rand, here, do some research and tell me about it. But it was not Rand, actually. So here we go. I would give this an eight but it gets a nine for the very convincing execution of theme and expression of forest succession. You aren't a samurai. You aren't crafting swords. You are growing the wood to make the coal to forge the swords. That's an amazing bit of willingness to take some steps away from the typical action in games. This game seems destined not to get off of Japan much, which is a shame because there is no language dependency. And I think it plays very nicely with any number of players brisk with just enough surprise luck can be managed not quite enough but decently there are subtle but real light aspects of area control as well this is a rare take on resource management in which you manage individual trees or copses of trees and the reflection of reality is persuasive the game is specific about the species and accurately reflects real-life forest succession and the actual species that would be used for this kind of coal furnace work in traditional art. If you want an East Asian origin game that doesn't simply hit the usual stereotype stories, doesn't take place in a city or warring provinces, this is a real option for you. Add in the wooden components and modular board, and we found a lot of reason to replay and introduce friends to this game that is easily an hour or less, even with four people. So yes, let me apologize to everybody. I realize I just pissed off half of the listening audience as they go and look up Tataraba and Forest and realize that this is nearly impossible to get. And yeah, we'll probably show it off just for that reason. Well, that's what Heavy Cardboard got its name for, right? seriously right if it's out of print we'll feature it here we go sure. but no that's not that sounds amazing to me but the fact that you're growing the wood to make the coal to forge the swords used by samurais dude yes that sounds awesome 
That sounds like lignum. Now I need a 12 hour nap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving on to the shopping list or hunting. What you got? So very timely. I was pseudo hunting for a copy of Pret-a-Porter for a while now, looking for a decent, you know, priced copy to come in the BGG geek market, just because I love that theme. Um, you talk about Rococo all the time. I love that game. Um, and of course, Portal announced a reprint like three days ago. So if you've watched BGG Marketplace in the last two days, there's been like a flood of copies that have come available now. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to wait for the Kickstarter now. So, um, so there's that. Um, so a little history on that game. Uh, the night I met Ignacy uh, was at BGG Con four or five years ago, and he taught me that game. And it was me, Amanda, Ben, and I can't remember who the fourth player was. And Ignacy and his wife, Mary, they were, Ignacy taught us. And thankfully, because that is one of, if not the worst rule book in board gaming, it's one of, and he will freely admit that. So he taught the game, we played it, and I got absolutely destroyed and ignacy looks at me says heavy cardboard huh and i said hey i said hey i review them doesn't mean i have to play them well so yeah that was that that was my introduction to ignacy and he and i have been friends ever since nice the only other two things i'm hunting or anticipating are city of the big shoulders which i backed um i i lived in chicago for five years the history behind that game Everything about it, the marriage of 18xx with Euro stylings, sign me up, right? And then the yeah, age. And of- that game is so good. I am such a big fan of that game. So I'm really excited to see what when that comes out. I cannot wait. Sure. And the Age of Steam Kickstarter with the Uno 2R. I don't own a copy of the game. I love it. I play it every con. There's people in my game group who have it, which is why I don't buy it. That's an insta back too for me as well. Yeah, I'm, I can't wait. I'm stoked. Uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Basically, <laughs> I, I sound like such a fanboy, even though he's he's a he's a buddy. But even so, Ian O'Toole's work is so good that, in and of itself, gets me interested in a game, which is fascinating. Coming from somebody who I have no problem playing a winsome game that has no artwork in it, so the fact that. I can, it, someone's artwork appeals to me at such a level that that in and of itself can get me to look at a game that really, that says something to me. And what artwork is there to do in that game? It's, there's nothing to it. It's so banal. Yet his work actually makes the game look pretty, if that's possible. Yeah, it's, it's kudos to Ian. So well done there. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to, to getting my hands on the, uh, on the finished uh, edition of the new Age of Steam. Good call on that. What about you? Are you anticipating anything? Not a ton on the immediate horizon, but to name a few things, uh, Dominant Species Marine, I'm really looking forward to that. I saw that Paul Grogan is working on the rules video on that, so I, I'll be honest, I haven't heard a ton. I also haven't gone out of my way researching it yet, but can not wait. For Do you know game. any... Do you know anything about the changes? Uh, dominant species marine. I know. I li- like. I don't care. I. But I'm excited. No, I have not delved into it. But I, Chad Jensen, dominant species. Um, one of my all time favorite games. I just take all my money. Here. Uh, yeah. I mean, dominant species is a top five game for me too. I haven't researched it that much either. But what I have researched is better at lower player counts. Right, three to four players. 
Um, and also the, the programming of when you put your action pawns down takes place immediately. It doesn't take place in order of where you place from top to bottom, like a book. And that worries me. So I'm not really sure how that'll actually play. Wow. That really changes the game. I mean, drastically would change the game. So we'll sure. see. I'm willing. I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt, though, just because of dominant species, the original one. A couple other things: uh, the food chain magnate ketchup. Uh, the pre-orders just opened for it. I'm sure that's going to be a massive hit. I played it a bit at Essen, and I like what I saw and what I heard from Yoris and Yarun there at Splatter. So obviously, that's a that's a no-brainer for me and most of the herd. If you like food chain, just get it. And it, it's going to change the opening moves to where they're not as, I don't want to say scripted, but there there are kind of like in Great Western Trail to where there are specific strategies. There are specific strategies in food chain, and I think this is going to turn them on their ear. So looking forward to that. And the last one I actually just heard about from one of the folks in the herd, Adam. It's a game from Tony Boydell called Foothills. Uh, saw this being play tested a few times last year. It looked pretty clever. And the description is in foothills, several small train companies are waiting for two players to expand their route network, a tricky action choice mechanism with new challenges and different game structures should provide plenty of variety. And having seen it and just briefly looked at it a little bit, um, there was enough there that piqued my interest. So uh, yeah, looking forward to this plus Tony Boydell and Snowdonia and the upcoming Alubari. Yeah, looking forward to uh, to that as well. So nothing on the immediate horizon, but that's not to say that there aren't things that I haven't mentioned that I'm not looking forward to, but there's only so much time, right? Yeah. I mean, I saw that discussion on Slack and that's a game I had not heard of either. So there you go. So anything you're looking forward to playing? So your recent stream of Shipyard, I have that on my shelf of shame. I want to get that out. Nobody in my group really seems to want to play it. Uh, so I'll have to push that to the table. Why? Um, I don't so know. Good. Yeah. I it's, just, I, it's best at four players. And like I said, if if you have folks in your group that are really, really worried about the, the contracts being balanced and whole nine yards, you can always play with open contracts and then everybody chooses a couple at the end. Um, but I, honestly, yeah, I think it's a lot more fantastic. I think it's a lot more simplistic than that. It's an old game. Nobody gets excited about old games. I mean, <laughs> unless they That's play a them. shame because I, I think there's, yeah. Shipyard is, is Vladimir Suchi's best game by far. Well, I'll bring up some other old games that I'm looking forward to playing. The first being Asgard. I know you have plans to yes. stream that. So uh, I've actually, uh, I, however, however, I am not looking forward to teaching that game. Well, that you and me both, because I actually had it on the table about a year ago and I teach all the games in our group and I had it on the table and my buddy Zach is like, I'm really ready to play it. And I'm like, okay. And you, and I I had a pregnant pause and I'm like, nope, we're packing it up. (laughs) (laughs) So it's funny. People, people have asked me to teach specific games, right? You know, because, oh, wow, this is a real bear to teach or whatever, you know, to be able to stream it. And I can appreciate that. And, and tonight's game that we're going to be talking about is definitely one of those games that there's just a lot of rules and it's just a big teach. Asgard is such an odd duck that the entire game 
you play one way and then the final round completely changes what the game is about and what you're doing that it is it's going to be a massive wait what that makes no sense until you actually do it but it does thematically to teach it does thematically the whole game you're building up for ragnarok right you're you're getting your you know whatever it is your your alliances all formulated and then at the end of the game you're going to have this massive fight but the fifth round plays out so differently than the first four that teaching that and trying to tell people what they should be long-term planning for is darn near impossible, I think. And so like, uh, and not to, not to go off the rails talking about the logistics of streaming this, but obviously everybody that will stream that will be on stream will have had to have played this a number of times before we stream it. Because I think the way that I have to teach this is I just teach their first four rounds at the beginning of the game. Okay, we're going to take a break now, and I'm going to teach you how to play the game for the final round, which you're not going to understand why we've been doing what it is we've been doing. But I'll be honest, I don't know of another way to go about doing this because you have to see how it plays out for it to make sense. Asgard is such an enjoyable game but it is such an impossible teach that the first time I played it, I played this at LyriaCon last year and I, and I, I learned it from Mariano himself. And he was like, so the last round's not going to make any sense to you. Don't worry about it. So I, I, I played it and I was like, wait, what? Huh? What are we doing now? I don't, what? And then afterwards I was like, I can't wait to play this again. And so I can't wait to, stream that but man that teach terrifies me yeah it's, i mean it's right in my wheelhouse it's a super thematic euro with a lot of complexity interesting decisions but it's the only game i've ever put on the table and walked away from a teach <laughs> so can't wait to do asgard folks yeah and i i'm i just picked up reef encounter at pax U. i'm interested in playing that and maria those are nice well, Reef Encounter, we recently decided, and by recently, I think this was yesterday, decided that Reef Encounter is going to be February 2019's Game of the Month. Wow. Uh, a lot of folks okay. have been clamoring for a stream of Reef Encounter. Well, not only going to get a stream, but also going to get a review of it. Probably, I think how the reviews are going to work is the reviews are going to be in the following month for the Game of the Month, just to be able to get enough plays of that game in. Uh but that said, yeah, Reef Encounter is fantastic. I, I'm terrible at it, but I love it. And Maria is great three-player Waro that we yeah. recently showed off. Well, that's why it hasn't been played. The one time we had that situation, we chose TKR. So Not, not a bad choice. <laughs> no. I mean, e- either one of those would have been a, a perfectly acceptable, fantastic game day. And yourself? Well, Reef Encounter, I mean, yeah, once I decided that's going to be the game of the month, I'm like, uh, yeah, I can't wait to get that to the table some more. And basically a whole lot of stuff that we're going to be streaming because the schedule is so jam-packed nowadays that I don't have a whole lot of time to play games that aren't going to be either streamed or reviewed on the show. Right, wrong, good, bad, or otherwise, that's just is what it is. That said, Reef Encounter, Shogun, 18 Lilliput, and I'm curious to see where I f- fall on 18 Lilliput because I've heard that it's not 
in 18xx. It's a card game, but that it tries to give a feel of it that a lot of folks that are big into 18xx are pretty lukewarm on it at best. Others really enjoy it. But uh, that live stream happened because it was voted on by the patrons. So looking forward to that. Ground Floor 2.0, which I'll be honest, I enjoyed Ground Floor. However, I played Ground Floor 2.0 at Arizona Game Fair last year with David Short, the designer, and saw all the new changes. And even though I liked the original Ground Floor, every single change that was made in this game made the game better. So across the board, it's a plus. So I'm looking forward to playing that and showing that off. And a couple that haven't gotten to yet, but looking forward to experiencing, which are DR Congo, as well as uh, Donning the Purple, which is right in my wheelhouse with Ancient Rome. So yeah, a lot of, lot of exciting stuff coming up for both formats, both over on YouTube as well as here on the podcast. I saw Ground Floor V2 being played a ton at HeavyCon. Seemed like it went over well. Yeah, um, well, I mean, everybody who plays it pretty much that I have encountered enjoys the game. So yeah. Let's dive into our featured review, which is Great Western Trail, published in 2016, designed by Alexander Pfister, artwork by Andreas Resch, published by Eggert Spiele, Stronghold Games, and about 14 other publishers. Plays two to four players. It says that it plays in 75 to 150 minutes. As far as availability and cost, I'll be honest, everywhere I looked, it's out of stock, but it can be had on the secondhand market for about 45 or 50 bucks. And as far as plays and player accounts that we've experienced, I have about 10 plays of this and I've played it two to four players. How about you, Evan? I'm at 18 plays, 12 at four, three at three and three at two. And with the expansion, two at four, one at three and one at two. So I played it all player accounts. You're ahead of me. I've only played the expansion a couple of times, but we are going to touch on the expansion, but that is going to be at the end of the review. That's going to be its own animal. So the main focus of this review is going to be for the base game and the base game only. So keep that in mind, folks. Also, kind of like last episode where I had Gorov kind of lead the discussion because he had far more experience in the game with Through the Ages than I did. It's going to be somewhat similar here because the way Evan thinks about this game and the level of knowledge that he has with this game far exceeds my own. And so I'm really, really excited to hear this discussion and that it's going to be from two points of view, even though I have about 10 different plays of this game. So without further ado, Evan... Tell folks what's going around in Great Western Trail. Okay. In Great Western Trail, players take the role of cattle hands, who drive steer across the Great Western Trail from Texas to Kansas City, where you will sell your herd for money and ship it to various cities in the West, and with the expansion, to cities in the North and the East. 
How you best convert the money you receive for selling cows into victory points is how you win the game. There are multiple mechanisms the player has at their disposal, hand management, deck building, and action selection via a variable roundel that is randomized every time you play and is customized by the buildings people build during the game. Players gain victory points by adding better cattle to their herd, constructing buildings, delivering cattle to distant cities, removing obstacles on the trail, completing objectives, hiring workers, and upgrading stations. The game has no rounds, but a clock mechanism to determine the game's end, dictated by how many times each player delivers to Kansas City, with the average player delivering their cattle five to seven times per game. While the game has point salad elements and that a lot of aspects to the game grant players victory points, it's not a typical point salad in that most VP come as a result of significant strategic planning, not random byproducts of every action. The player with the most victory points at the end wins the game. Well done. So let's go ahead and start off with the five factors that give the game its weight, in our opinion, starting off with complexity. So I don't think this is a very complex game. Uh, I think all of the complexity inherent to the game, it comes from the density of the board and the iconography. Um, and by density of the board, you mean the uh, just the information density on the board, right? There's a player market. There's a cattle market. There are, at the start of the big game, seven buildings that are on the board. And then as the game goes on, there are more of those as the players build. There's hazards on the board. There's a, a train track that goes around the outside. Uh, there's just so much going on on this board that I think it overwhelms new players. I think that's a fair point. And... The rules themselves, I mean, the the different steps to a turn are really not difficult in and of itself, but there are a, a lot of things going on. So kind of like what you just said, I think the it can be overwhelming and that a player can get, it's not the rules that add to the complexity, but yeah, I, I think it's just a, a complexity of information. I think is a good way to put it. So yeah, I think there's a fair bit here that adds to the, to the weight uh, as far as the planning aspect goes. So, I mean, a lot, I think a lot of people, at least people that play the game for the first couple of times, I felt this way. I thought it was strategically shallow, right? I had a hand of cards. I'm looking, I got a green two cow. I'm going to go to the green building that the building that allows me to discard the two cow. And, and that gives me two bucks. I've got to go there, right? That's the obvious choice. And so I just felt like I was hopping from building to building, just doing the thing that was the most obvious to do. It really takes three plays to understand the strategy and maybe six or seven to know how to win the game. And that's, you can lose the game on the very first turn by looking at where the board is, how what the worker market looks like, who you can hire right off the bat, because you can't hire anybody off the row with the token. And that's something that people don't think about right away. Um, and where the, where the neutral buildings are. If you're playing your first game, the buildings are optimized so that it's an easier walk through the trail. But as you play more, the buildings get randomized and you really have to focus on, well, where's the two most important buildings in the game? And that is the, her, the, the head market and the cow market. If those are in certain spots that are either easier or harder to get to or on places of the trail where you know you're going to have money, then the game becomes a lot more, I don't want to say fun to play, but an easier experience because I'm going to go to the more, market and buy it. More dynamic, would you say? Um, a little bit more user friendly. Like I can go to okay. the cow market right. and buy some cows because I'm going to have 15 bucks. But if the cow market is way up by Kansas City and you've gone through all these tax buildings, if you're playing against good players, you're going to get to that cow market and have six dollars. And, and you're going to be like, man, I can buy one three cow. And it's just going to feel a little bit unsatisfying. 
But so that's where the planning comes in. You have to look at the board state right from the beginning and say, this is the optimal way to go. And it's interesting that you you mentioned that early plays of this, this game appears to be more shallow than it really is. And as I want to do, I'll go through the comments on BGG as I'm getting ready and doing my prep for the show to be able to pit, pull out uh, specific comments to be able to read at the end of the review. And that is the one thing that I noticed over and over and over from the people that really did not like this game and it did not resonate with is they called it, you know, it has a wide breadth, but a very shallow depth. And I think it's going to be interesting as we go along hearing just at what level that this game can go when you get further along into this game. And as far as me, I'm not I'm not at your level. Like I'm not thinking about and we were talking about this before we recorded how the buildings can be set up in such in you know when you randomize the 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 order of the buildings where they come out at the beginning of the game, the neutral buildings how if the game if the buildings come out in a certain order then the game it's obvious what strategy you should be going for whereas to somebody at my level it's not obvious to me necessarily and so the fact that you look at this going okay this strategy has to be the way and long term this is what you should be doing based on the setup that i find that fascinating that a game that at first blush doesn't have that level of depth, but obviously with somebody on a higher level of play does see. So I find that really, really interesting that, and as we go along, we're going to hear about a, a experiential gap between a experienced player versus a, a neophyte in this game. And I think that's going to be, uh, I think that's going to be interesting because I find it good to have an overall plan, but also find that the game is a lot more tactical based on, what buildings are where, so somewhat like what you were talking about, but also adapting to what other strategies players are employing, but not to the level that you're talking about. So I find that just fascinating because I don't see this stuff yet. Well, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. I, the first seven or eight times I played this game, I won it once. And the, the only time I won was my very first play against two players who had never played it before. And in my last 10 plays, I think I've lost it once. And it was to a player who is not a great Western Trail expert, but is a very good Euro game player and did a strategy that very good great Western Trail players know about. I don't know if he did it coincidentally, uh, you know, or what, but he blocked me from the things that I normally would have done. So he played it pretty optimally. That's how you win the game. So that's the proof that you have to plan long term and execute. There's, there's no, you know... No, no, finish that thought. Go ahead. No, please. I'm just, uh, there's, there is, the, you can't say a game doesn't have long-term planning if, you know, a novice walks in against somebody who's played it 12 times and wins. Uh, okay. That just, that yeah. just doesn't happen in my plays. So, and usually the person that's new or hasn't played in six or 12 months, they get ridiculously stomped on. This is not a game where you finish the game and I've got 92, you've got 90, he's got 87, no, it's, I got 109 and literally my last play, the last person had 25. Um, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> so, that, I mean, that's just, that's proof that the game has a lot more planning because you can't execute to that degree if you're not playing two, an hour and a half in advance of your first turn. Fair enough. 
Moving on to luck and random factors in this game. This may be a turnoff to a lot of players, uh, and I see some comments to that effect. There is quite a bit of luck in this game uh, on the surface. So where the buildings come out, uh, where what mar- workers are in the market, what workers come out of the bags when you're refilling Kansas City, uh, and obviously the biggest one, um, oh, well, what cows come into the market, um, but also and the, the initial big- board layout for the TPs and the hazards. But a lot of that is all pregame setup. Sure. However, filling up the 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 worker markets and everything else. That's all player dependent, but there is that random draw from them. The, the random draw of what you pull into your hand is going to be pervasive throughout the game. Now, this is something that I think um, novice players really enjoy about the game because there's nothing more exciting than I'm going to get rid of this two to get two bucks. What am I going to draw into my hand? You know, it's, is it going to be the three that I really want? Or am I going to be exasperated because I got a one and it's a duplicate or it's a duplicate of a card that I really didn't want it to be a duplicate of? So in early plays, I played it a lot where I was a step away from Kansas City and I would draw in like praying for the card that I needed. If you're doing that, you're playing the game wrong. Um, but that is a <laughs> but that Hi. is a <laughs> but that is a high and a low of this game, and it's something that every player has to deal with in some form or fashion. Moving on to the uh, to the game length. So don't uh, look at the box and say that this is a two-hour euro. Um, yeah, no, it. I've never found this to play that quickly outside of maybe a two-player game. I mean, I track all my plays, so I know exactly how long this game takes, and my average play at four players is two hours and 36 minutes. My average play at three players is two hours and 21 minutes. So this is not... And I, I'm playing with people who know the game, so there's no... I won't say there's no AP, but there's no like, what does that building do? How do I do this? You know, we know what the buildings do, yet you're still thinking about what you're doing on your turn. I do find, however, that two-player games are quite snappy. I mean, you can finish a two-player game in about 75 minutes, maybe 60, if you know what you're doing. But it doesn't Agreed. seem it doesn't seem to work out that way with a three- or four-player game. It seems to take a long time. And I'm not including setup or teardown, which is we'll get into in a little bit here. And on that note, the I so you thinking about this, having played this with high level players, let's call it, whereas me playing with a much more casual game, I think is a good way to put this, that our games are easily, you know, three, three plus hours because partially there's some of that. Hey, what does that building do? Oh, what does that icon uh, icon mean? There's some of that, but there's also some level of, okay, we're not necessarily having those long-term plans and being able to execute these because we don't have those high-level long-term plans. So we're kind of playing it far more tactically than a high-level player would. So there's going to be, it's just going to be a slower pace by default because of it. And the game can, it can drag a little there towards the end. So it can feel how long it plays. Whereas, you know, some games, some games you could play three, four hours and you're like, wow, I didn't realize that amount of time went by. Whereas on this, depending on the specific instance of that play, the game feels like it goes as long as it does a lot of times. I mean, my thoughts on that are 
if you have a novice player playing this game, they're going to try to squeeze all the juice from that lemon, right? They're going to go to almost every neutral building on the trail before they get to Kansas City because there's something good you can do on almost every building. So they're going to go here and then I'm going to go here and then an experienced player knows they can only take about three turns per per trip to Kansas City. You're going to go to two, maybe three buildings, and that's it. Like statistics will show at high levels of play, you're taking about 18 turns a game in this game, not counting deliveries to Kansas City, which you're going to do five to seven times. So you're only taking about 24 building actions during the game. So a good player is saying, that's really attractive, but not attractive enough. I'm going here. So the game naturally is shorter that way. Again, fascinated by this. This is amazing to me. As far as the getting it factor goes. So I think to really be able to win this game, it takes five or six plays. To get how the game plays, it's literally one turn around around L. Oh, I can look at the thing on my player board. I can go to this building, do the actions on that building. Once you know what the icons mean, I mean, it, you can enjoy the game. You know what you can do. But in order to win... Uh, you really have to play at least three plays, more like five or six, because you're not going to see everybody execute the individual strategies. Most people start this game and they want to just do the cowboy strategy, right? You get a big hand of cards. They're all color coded. Oh, I got a purple. I got a brown. That's really cool. It's just easier to execute. It's theoretically more fun, although I would vehemently disagree with that. Um, and so I think you it's hard to see the strategies if nobody's experimenting. So until you play it with players that have played it a few times, say, well, let me try this. Oh, that's interesting. Like a great example, I played this game at Dice Tower Con two years ago, and I, I literally taught it. And I said, oh, you got these spots off the bottom of the trail to the left of the desert and to the bottom with the swamps and the rock slide. Nobody ever builds there. there. You get some extra bonus actions if you do that, but I've never seen anybody do it. And the guy was like, what are you talking about? I do it almost every game. And... That was like my 10th play of the game, you know, so getting it. Is- and it kind of it's one of those moments like and that kind of goes uh, playing with different people opens you up your mind and your eyes to, oh, hey, I'm, we're not playing the exact same strategies that we always do because we're playing with the same group of people. Being able to play with different folks is going to open your eyes to this something that you might not even see because that's not the way you look at the game, right? 100%. I do think there is group think. If you get in the same group there, I know I've heard of stories where people uh, have told me that their wife, let's say, only plays cowboy strategies. That's the only thing they'll ever do in this game. And I think, man, if you're doing it that way, then you've missed out on so much of what this game has to offer. I mean, play, play it how you want. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, I hear you to where you're not adapting to what other people are doing, the layout of the board, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So ultimately, where do you think this game falls? Again, my answer is going to be contextualized by my experience. I feel like this is a medium weight Euro game. Um, the heaviness of the game, why it gets its BGG rating, which is like 3.7 or something like that. Yeah, it's 3.69. Is- it is. is largely due to the overwhelming iconography. I've played with people who have played this game two or three times, and they say, what does that icon do? And they're referring to like, say the objective card icon on one of the neutral buildings. And they'll ask me that question three or four times in the same play. And I'm almost like, I've answered that like four times. So I don't think the game is heavy per se. I just think that it is inaccessible to people who don't play it regularly. If you're playing this once every six months, every game is going to be like a relearn. And so you're going to feel like it's heavy. But if you're playing it a lot, man, you can breeze through this game, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I think that I, I think your experience is going to dictate where you feel the it, the weight is. And see, I feel like this is on the north side of medium. You know, call it medium heavy, if you will, because of that. But also, honestly, even having I've been influenced by your pre- preparation for the podcast because of just going through reading how you think about this game. I'm like, wow, there's a lot more here than I really realized that there was. And so that depth of the game is deceptively deeper than what I originally foresaw or what I at my level see the game as. So I find it really eye-opening that the game has more to it than I have even considered at this point. So yeah, I think it's definitely going to be on the North side of medium for me, but again, it's semantics as far as the actual rating, the number on BGG, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I don't disagree with that. I mean, it's a quintessential medium heavy euro. I don't think it's a heavy game, but you're right. I mean, I now process the information when I, when I play, so that it doesn't feel heavy to me like I would if I was playing something for the second or third. Like if I played Through the Ages, which you just reviewed, which I love, but I've only played it a couple times, that game feels a lot heavier to me because I just don't know it as well. Um, right. And it is a heavier game, let's be honest. But um, yeah, so I definitely think this is contextualized by my experience with the game. Agreed. So moving on to the components of the game, uh, a bit of a mixed bag, aren't they? Um, I mean, say what you want. This is a stronghold print, right, uh, here in the U.S., and they got a lot of flack for terraforming Mars. Um, I, for the I, super thin player boards, which are also present here in Great Western Trail. That's right. Um, I, I mean, it is what it is. You've got a custom meeple for your train. You've got a custom meeple for your cowboy. They probably didn't have to do that. They could have just given you a normal meeple. But the, the the cardboard stock is pretty good here. I sleeve my cards, so I don't know if they're win and finish. I do not think they are. I haven't checked. Uh, they are not. I don't believe they are when and, I last played it. I, no. And the player boards are paper thin, which is kind of a juxtaposition when you see the expansion, which the expansion board is this thick, heavy cardstock cardboard. But um, I actually use these Etsy acrylic overlays, which a lot of people are familiar with, and I've pimped out my game. So that stuff is kind of lost on me. But I don't think the components differentiate themselves here or detract. I agree. The I do think that the player boards themselves, there's just no reason for them to be as cost cutting and flimsy as they are. Whereas like you said, you use an overlay, but I shouldn't need to. Right. And let's face it. You're not really the, the player board is just sitting on your table. So it's not like it's getting shuffled. It's not getting anything like that. It's just, you know, the, the corners are going to get gird up. They're going to get ding just because they're as thin as they are. That said, I prefer linen finish on the cards, but so far I have found no, wear issues or any real major issues with the components. And I agree that the, the custom meeples and everything else is, is a nice aspect. And I, I feel like this is mostly a, you know, solid Euro expectation of a game published nowadays, I think is a good way to put it. I mean, I've played my copy in almost all of my plays and I'm not seeing any wear on the cardboard chits. Uh, so they're holding up pretty well. And as far as the player boards not being recessed, um, 
if in the standard, you know, without pimping out your copy, I will say that if it gets jostled, unlike a terraforming Mars, where you have no idea what your income is now for that resource in this game, if it gets jostled, you can look on the board and see, well, that token came from a dark bordered space. You can kind of back into where it came from. Because, right. So it's not as big of a problem. Exactly. So moving on to the box size, the box size is a standard square box. So 11.6 inches square by 2.8 inches deep, or call it 30 by 30 by seven centimeters, roughly Um, graphic design. Well, I, we both have uh, uh, our feelings on this and I think we're of the same mind here. I mean, I think the graphic design is fairly good in this game. Uh, A lot of the stuff, the information you need to know is right on the board. How many cows you have to put back into the market when the market, uh, the the hiring market token is tripped. Um, The action that's kind of hard to, you know, for new players to decipher on spending a cowboy to put two cows in the market is right on the board. The cost to hire the workers right on the board. Um, I think a lot of that stuff is very well done. Um, My critiques on the graphic design are... When the buildings get placed on the board, it's very difficult to see where the arrows are on the branching parts of the trail, and you don't really know where you're supposed to go in early plays. Um, I will say that the the one big thing that I will criticize the game for is how it denotes the cost to hire workers on, on neutral building D, uh, I think it is, um, where you can get negative zero to hire your first worker, which is obviously where they are on the track. But then the next one is negative two. The rulebook clearly states that any cost in the game is denoted in red and any benefit is denoted in white or green. But I mean, you're not going to teach the game like that, right? So I I will, but I get your point to where, and let's face it, most players aren't going to be reading the rulebook. And so having that iconography a little bit clearer would have, would have benefited the players. Yeah. I mean, most people think that that second hire is a discount and it's even more confusing because there's a building in the building that uh, there's a building in the game that lets you hire for plus one, which is a discount, but plus one to most human brains says that's a dollar dollar. Expensive. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's, it's backwards. It's not, uh, intuitive. That's right. Yes. Um, the other thing I'll bring up is that the objective card icon on the neutral building where you can either push your certificates or take a or take an objective card because the objective cards are off board. There's a bugle on both the, the building and the card. Uh, so it's easy to kind of back into it. But the, because the cards are off board, the the new player sees that icon and starts looking around the board and their player board for what that means. Yeah, and they can never for fig- a bugle. Right. Yes. And they can't figure it out. And then so that's the thing I, I continually have to go back and forth with people on. No, that's an objective card. Um, so, I mean, by and large, though, I think it's pretty good. But again, my experience might be biasing me. And for me, the biggest thing for me is the cost of the market, like you said, which you already touched on. That's my biggest gripe with the iconography here because it it it's unintuitive. It's backwards from what it, I feel like it should be. And I think the game would have benefited, uh, even though the, the player boards have a really good player aid on them in a sense that it shows you, okay, step A, step B, step C on it and shows you the flow of a turn. I, I think this game would have strongly benefited from an icon player aid that said uh there is a really really good one on bgg by username pops it's called player aid 1.3 and i'll link to it in the show notes 
highly recommended. It is really, really well done on there. So definitely recommend checking that out. I mean, that is a huge oversight. If any game needs a player aid, it's this game with the overwhelming amount of icons in the game. But one icon that isn't clearly shown uh, that's on your player aid is the green exclamation point. So when you can go on a building, you can do all the actions on that building if it's a neutral building or one of your own. And if it's not, you can only do one auxiliary action. And that's denoted when you can take the full action of the building, it's denoted by a green exclamation point. Nowhere is that on the board. Nowhere there is that on a player. Who the hell knows what a green exclamation point means, right? <laughs> so people were like, what does that mean? That means I got to stop what I'm doing. And, <laughs> and so I, I find that new players get really confused about that. Yeah. And again, it's information dense because there's so much stuff going on on that board that it's easy to get overwhelmed with this. And so that, that icon uh, glossary or icon player aid really would have benefited. Plus it's going to help prevent a lot of those. Oh, what does that mean again? Oh, just look at your player aid, right? So there's that moving on to the artwork. All right, let, let, let's start out the, the box cover. I feel like that is what some might term as a misstep. So I think the box cover is right up there with the old school Concordia box cover. And it's so off-putting that it turns people away from the game. Um, I know me personally, it took me about nine months for me to say, and I love Western themed anything, but it took me about nine months to actually play this game because I'm kind of creeped out by those three dudes on the box cover. (laughs) They just, it's terrible. They, they, they look, um, they look like the same person, but just doctored up a little bit different. And And it's, and it's, it's kind of uncanny Valley-ish too, where it's like too realistic, but not trying to be in that pseudo in between area. Yeah. Like, like Pendragon, but moving on. Um, yeah, just not, not, not the most appealing box cover, but I'll be honest again, Artwork is subjective, although I think universally, I think that's that's an agreed upon thing. But as far as the artwork in the game, I think it's kind of whimsical, I think is a is a good way to put it to where it's it's not super serious, um, but it's not cartoony. It's somewhere in between. And it just it feels good. I like the aesthetic used in this game. I mean, I would describe it as fresh. There's not a lot of board games it's that look like it. Um, it's not homogenous to a bunch of other stuff out there. And I really appreciate that they used really vibrant colors, not only for the cows, but for the workers. You got purple or like an orangey yellow and a brown. So they're very distinct. Um, so I think the game actually functions very well. And I wonder, and I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder if that was a ode to being colorblind friendly because those colors, I don't ever hear about orange, purple colorblindness. Usually it's a red and green, that type thing. So I wonder if it's, it's to take care of that. And if so, then props to them. If not, I appreciate that they use non-traditional colors like that. I, I like something and it's just something different, right? Sure, but the three cows are blue, red, and yellow. So I don't, I'm not a colorblind person, so I don't know how that plays out. Same. Right, right. All right, moving on to the rule book as far as clarity and quality. So I reread it last night just to get my, you know, bearings with it again. And it's the classic Eggert Spiel format that's used in Mombasa and Village and Rococo, where 
they outline all of the main actions with a certain color. And then as you flip the page, it's a totally different color to denote you've now you're looking at something completely different. And I, I find that I learn really well from this style of rule book. There's a lot of examples in the book. Uh, it's very clearly outlined what you can do. The issue with the rule book is just that there's a lot of rules in this game and there are some things that they try to highlight, but because they highlight them in a way that's not in the procession that you're reading, it's hard to, it's easy to miss. And the key example I'm going to give here and one that blows people away, even people that play this game five, six, seven times is, Hey, you can start on any company included. Yes. You can start on any neutral building you want in your first turn. Literally, you can start. What? Yes, they're like, you don't start at the beginning of the trail. No, it's right. right. But it's in the rule book in white off to the right hand corner by where the example of play is shown. Uh, You know, like Mary can go on this part of the trail or that part of the trail. It's like in a little white box above that. Why it's not also in the normal procession of the rules is beyond me. But more people miss that than catch it. So it's obviously not effective. I played it multiple times and then I heard about that and I was like, wait, what, where you can start anywhere on the, yeah. So I agree. I enjoy and I appreciate the way that Egert Spiele lays out the rule books. There are definitely some ambiguities and there are some, you can't nail everything in a rule book. There's always going to be those edge cases or those things that aren't crystal clear. And that's not to give a pass. It's just I'm being realistic and there are a ton of questions, obviously on on BGG rules questions, uh, most of which are answered by the rule book. And I feel like the rule book did a very good job of being able to teach the game and being able to learn the game from the rule book. It's just some of those edge cases uh, aren't covered and there are some uh, less than clear specifics in there that i had to get uh i had to look up but other than that yeah i'd say overall well done on the rule book yeah i don't really have a problem with to your point there are some things that are tough to find in there i came in even with my experience with the game there was a situation where um you you had the ability to move from one building right to the next building and do you do you refill your hand between building actions or not um that was hard for me to find in the moment but uh you know, we were able to find it's actually in the book. It's just not referenceable. That it's a well. matter of it's not where you think it should be or where you would expect it to be. Right. That's right. All right. Moving on to the setup, teardown, teaching and learning. I got to be honest. There's no quick way to teach this game. First and foremost, let me just get that out of the way. It, it Teach doesn't get quicker for me ever, no matter what, how many times I teach it. Um, well, if you're playing with experienced players and you're randomizing the buildings, uh, you have to teach 19 buildings. I mean, there's no way a person's going to play the game well if you don't say this building can do this and this building can do this and this building can do this. There's 19 distinct buildings with the expansion in the game. And you're, I mean, you could, I guess, teach it and be like, we'll cover that when we get to it. But then the player, you're basically taking one third of the strategies away from the player because that is the craftsman strategy. What building am I going to build? Where am I going to build it? How does this synergize with the next building I build? And if you're not teaching those, you're really handicapping other players. And I, I agree with you. Uh, just, I mean, talking about what you can do on your turn with movement is simple. You can go up to four spots and you can put your guy down and do the actions on that building. But every building is different. 
uh, how you deliver with the duplicates on the cows and that you discard your entire hand, not just the cows you've actually used for the money value. Um, and you only get money for non-duplicate cows and then you have to move your train and and you you know how much you have to pay depends on where you deliver. And there's a lot. There's just a lot here. There is a ton. Um and there's a lot of weird stuff on the buildings too, like the uh, extraordinary deliveries and ringing the bell and being able to bring your train back to any station you want. Or, I mean, there's people all the time like, what does this mean? And I almost want to say like, you'll never get that building out, but it's unfair to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it is, it is a daunting teach. I just taught it a couple times over the last couple of weeks and it's 30 minutes solid, even with people who have played it before. And setup is not, fast and not easy as well because you have the one, two, and three tiles and you have to separate the one, two, and three value tiles because they they go into certain dishes so that they can be seated for Kansas City, et cetera, et cetera, as well as the original setup as well. And then no, set- absolutely oh. agree. no, I absolutely agree with that. It's uh I'm glad I love this game because it's it's a bear to, to set up and break down. Um, yeah. I have this. I have the BGG baggies that separate the one, twos, and threes. So after every game, I just stuck them in there, and it's it's easier that way. And I'm sure if you had an insert, maybe it would be even easier. But um, it's just you got to lay out the cow market. It's just it's annoying, no doubt. It, it is. There's a lot of not just physical stuff, but as far as the teach goes, as as we hammered, it's uh. What I have found, and you obviously are probably going to disagree with this, I think, but if you're sitting down with new players, going over all the buildings is just TMI, just eyes glaze over. And it just, I realize that it's removing one of the strategies, but it's just, it's too much, I think, for most people to try and absorb all in one time to where, okay, look, you can try and build buildings, et cetera, et cetera, but we're not going to go over them into, you know, individually. Cause like you said, 19 buildings, that's just, that's just overkill along with learning the actual base game itself. I, I won't disagree. I'll actually completely agree. Uh, I feel like I'm between a rock and a hard place when I teach this game, because I mean, people don't even understand the concept of upgrading a building. So I pay $2 per craftsman, but I can go from a one to a four. If I have three, how does that work? And that's just one of the most simple things inherent to that strategy that there is, let alone what the building does that you're putting down on the board. So I definitely agree with you there, but I don't know what to do about it. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a daunting teach. Yep. Yeah, I think we've driven that point home pretty well. Sure, no doubt. <laughs> All right. So the main part here. So, well, in theory, what makes the game enjoyable and why? Uh, Well, we touched on this earlier. Like, I think there's that thrill of I'm going to use this card to do this action on this building. What am I going to draw back into my hand? And then what does it do for my future decisions? So if I have like, let's say I'm early in the trail and I draw uh, a cow that gives me a unique hand of four or five cows, now, do I want to rush to Kansas City to make the delivery, to make the money, or do I want to take the risk of going to a building to take advantage of pumping my certificates or or obviously hiring or whatever? Um, you know, I think that's very enjoyable for most players, especially like if you're playing a craftsman strategy, the neutral building that allows you to build a building also has discarded two cow for two dollars. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone there. I've had the two cow in my hand, but if I'm playing that strategy, 
I'm not building a big hand of cows. So do I want to take the risk of getting rid of that two to draw in like maybe another two that I already have in my hand? And now not only have I gotten rid of the two I wanted, but I've duplicated a two that I didn't want to duplicate. So there's like a push your luck element that I think people find thrilling even in a, in a two and a half. I know that seems counterintuitive in a two and a half hour euro that a pusher luck mechanic or a pseudo pusher luck mechanic is going to juice people up. But I do think that, you know, I've seen people one step from Kansas City draw the wrong card or the right card. And there's this huge oh, explanation. Yeah. And people either love that or hate that. And the people that love it find it very compelling in this game. So um, I definitely find that that contributes to the enjoyment of the game for some people. And on that note, this game really is a positive reinforcement game in that there's lots of things to do and they're all positive and call it lots of candy. And most everything that you do in this game is going to end in a positive reward. Even if you're not necessarily competitive and maybe you're trouncing me in this game, but even so every action that I take in this game, just about is going to reward me in some positive manner. And so I start out in this game to where I have nothing, right? And the game, you feel that growth in both your abilities as well as kind of call it the story of the game as it progresses. You start out weak, you have no buildings, sad looking herd. And by the end of the game, you've grown it into something that you can be proud of. And you can actually see whether it's, you know, this, this really impressive herd of cows or these really impressive, you know, uh, amount of, of buildings, whatever direction you choose to go, even if it's a muddled strategy or a lack of a strategy, there is still positives to come out of this. And you don't, even if your score doesn't represent what you've done, you can look down and be like, Oh, Hey, wow. Look at this, this, yeah, I'm happy with this. Like, I, I feel like I did stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to build on that point, the game uses a score pad, which are universally, you know, hated, but it works in this game because you don't know if you're playing well or poorly. You think you're playing good. I can't tell you how many times in the first half dozen plays, I'm like, man, I'm playing this game so great. Oh, I'm score, killing it. Look at score, this. Oh, yeah. Score comes out and I'm, I'm, I've lost my 35 points. And I'm like, how did that happen? I felt like I was doing so good. Um, so there's that opacity to the scoring that when when you're in the middle of the game experience, you feel like you're doing great, even when you're not. And I think that's actually a tribute to the game. Whereas I don't mind, I don't dislike the scoring pad aspect to where there's not a score track to where, oh, wow, I'm behind by 40 points right now. This is fun to where you can still get a sense of it to some degree, but you're not sure. And like you said, you can feel good about what it is you're doing. And then maybe you get the bad news at the end of the game, but during the actual process of the game, you've enjoyed your experience because you've had that positive reinforcement. Yeah, absolutely. I I think another thing that the game um, has uh, to breed the enjoyment is it's, it's a bunch of micro turns really. Uh, I mean, there is some AP in this game, obviously, but it's just I can go to one of three or four buildings and I'm going to do the thing on that building. So before you know it, it's your turn again, um, especially if you get to know the game after a while. It, you, you can't even go to the bathroom or get a beer. It's it's your turn again, which is very count, you know different than most euros where it could be five minutes before it comes back around to you. Yeah, it's very quick, at least in theory, it should be right. Absolutely. Uh, and and like other track like games. 
uh, you mentioned lignum earlier in the episode or something like a, a heaven and ale where you can race up a path and skip a bunch of things or you can choose to mosey along hitting a bunch of spaces along the way. Again, talking about my level of play, not necessarily ideal play here. The game allows for different pacing of players. And so players, not pacing of their turns, but pacing of what it is that they're doing within the game. And so it allows for that variable nature, whether or not that's necessarily the right thing to do. It allows for it. The game space allows the players to do that. And although playing with sharks, like I said, it's not necessarily something that you want to do because as you alluded to earlier, you're probably making three stops along the way in between the beginning of the trail in Kansas City. Whereas for me, I'm making maybe four or five, maybe even six stops, which obviously you're telling me is 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 poor play, but I'm playing it much more tactically than you are. And it, it at least allows me to do that to where, okay, it offers you candy. It's just whether or not you can say, no, I don't want to ruin my dinner. I'm going to stay on target and stay on this path, pun intended. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I also think the game has incredible variability and replayability. Oh, completely. I agree. You have 12 buildings now with the expansion. Uh, They're both double-sided. So there's 24 possibilities there. You have seven neutral buildings. They can be randomized. And trust me, where they end up on that trail to start the game drastically impacts the... I mean, I've seen games where a two-player game is 89-86 and a two-player game is 58-46 by equally strong players. It's just by the way the layout of the board is. Sometimes like if the hiring market's right next to the cow market, you can't do both. You're going to spend right. all your you money. You don't have in- enough money. Right. So so you it's like almost like the game is shortened by half um, in terms of what you can do on your turns. Um, and also like with all the different ways you can play the game, engineer, craftsman, cowboy, or going down the side paths versus taking the normal part of the trail. Well, what, what happens if I build here and now I get a cert pump if I drop a one cow? Um, there's just so many different ways to play the game that... I think to peel back that onion takes more plays than most people give a game, to be honest, in today's day and age in this hobby. Oh, yeah. I think I I, I don't know what that number is, but I would say if somebody gets five plays of a game, more often than not, they're going to feel like they, quote unquote, got their money's worth in a game. And here we are, me, 10 plays into the game, and you essentially double that. You and I are still playing two different games when we play Great Western Trail, which is fascinating to me. Because I'm still at that because a lot of my plays tend to be after a, you know, fair bit of time to where I'm having to kind of relearn it in a lot of ways. I find that fascinating that I haven't even delved into the stuff that you're seeing, much less enjoying the expansion, which I'll be honest, I do so far, having played it a couple of times. Sure. I'm, I don't begrudge that opinion whatsoever. And I think the, the expansion adds a lot to the game for people who play it every six months or so. I really right. don't have, I don't have much negative to say for that audience. Um, my critiques that we'll get into those in a bit are specific to people who play this game a lot. All right. Fair enough. So here's a question for you. So this game really is when you break it down, you look at that score pad, it really is a point salad game. However, it doesn't at all feel like a point salad game for some reason. Now, I wonder if that's, I mean, you score 
buildings, money, delivery stations, cows, gold cards, specialized employees, the whole nine yards. Plus there's more, yet it doesn't give that feel. And I think, and you tell me what you think on this. I think it's because you're not doing stuff specifically just for the points, but you're doing it for a reason to help build your engine, whether it's income, building buildings, clearing a path through hazards for buildings, et cetera, so that it, it helps in that regard. And it's not points for points sake. No, I, I think you're right. You're building to something better, right? So uh, the early rounds, the first two or three deliveries to Kansas City, you're not generating a lot of quote unquote points as if you were to mark it down on a score pad during those first three trips to Kansas City. But in your last trip and maybe your second to last trip, not every trip, but every single turn you take should be getting you six to nine points. So you're probably getting 80% of your total points in this game in your last six or five moves, um, you know, not counting deliveries to Kansas City. Because if you're taking an engineer strategy, you're going down the side path and every station you're coming into is going to give you six, seven, eight points for, you know, a de minimis amount of money. You can't get there early in the game. You're stuck in those early stations where you're paying, you know, a lot of money for two points, one point. So if you're building up to that, it's not like, oh, I'm going to do this and I get five points and you're going to do that and you're going to get six. You have to plan it out. But yes, you're going to get points from a lot of different things, but only if you play well. So do you want to talk about theme? On this? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I love the Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Westerns, you know, Fistful of Dollars, uh, uh, Outlaw Josie Wales, although that's not a Spaghetti right. Western, um, you know, Good, Bad and the Ugly. So if you like this theme, uh, you'll, I think it contributes to your enjoyment of the game. I've, I've had conversations with people where, I mean, theoretically, this could be rethemed as you're a DHL delivery guy delivering to a different city with your packages, right? And I don't know if I would find that game as engaging as I do this game. There's something mystical about I'm a cowboy in the Old West and I'm delivering to these. And it's so pasted on. I don't know why that matters to me, but it works for me. And I've talked to other people that feel the same way. So, uh, you know... I don't know what to say about that. It just it's it's something that to your point, it's whimsical. The bar the board art, the theme, I just I just really enjoy the aesthetic and the it, the environment it puts me in. I enjoy westerns not to the level that you do, and the theme does come through a bit. It's not dripping with theme and like you said, it could be rethemed and the game wouldn't change. The feel of it may change for people that enjoy Westerns, but the game itself. So by that rationale, would you consider the theme pasted on? I suppose. But that said, I can get into the theme. I I get that. Okay. And sure, some people have made a point that, oh, hey, moving the herd and, and that things aren't historically accurate or, but that said, the concept of what it is that you're doing it all makes sense to me. And I can kind of, the theme does enhance my enjoyment of the game and it helps bring me into the game more so than I would have expected. And you're talking to somebody that enjoys Westerns, but doesn't love them. So yeah, I think there's something to be said for that for sure. I mean, with that said, there are a couple major thematic disconnects, right? When you trade with the Indians, they typically don't pick up their TP and go home. You know, like you're, you're not usually, no, you no. know, and, and when you deliver uh, cattle to a city, oh, I don't want that because it's a duplicate cow. I don't know. I didn't know that in the 1800s, there were genetic engineers that didn't want the same cow. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so stuff right. like that. 
So the last positive that I think we ought to touch on is, at least for me, I enjoy player-controlled game timings in a game to where there is not a set. Now, this isn't to say that there isn't there aren't games that I don't enjoy that have, okay, you're going to play X amount of rounds or whatever it is. Take Asgard that we talked about earlier. I'm perfectly fine with that. But the fact that this is completely player-driven and player-controlled based on how often players are going to Kansas City to build that market and how often they're purchasing, I like that aspect of the game. Yeah, I mean, I've played games with my buddies who are very good at this game, and they know with with the hiring market down three steps from the bottom man, I'm not going to have enough time to do what I want to do because Evan's going to put this guy out and he's not going to put the TP out. And, and so there's ways to manipulate the timing of the game to where you can really squeeze your opponents. And that's, I, I agree with you. I think that's a great feature of this game. Agreed. All right. So moving on to the flip side of things, things that we're not super keen on is, all right, I mentioned this earlier that the game can drag a little on the back end towards the end you can get into a case of min maxing um, at least at my level of play players are min maxing but i'm curious from your standpoint how the last couple rounds of the game can be well the game naturally slows due to people building buildings right so that clogs up the trail and most novice players or inexperienced players will play it in a way where the first thing they do when they can unlock a black disc is take the extra hand size which is, you know, it's good for some strategies, but it it hurts your money income and it also uh, makes it harder for you to move on the trail. If you take the other way to to unlock and you unlock the movement, now you can, in a a four-player game, you can move six spots. And that is huge for good players to just bump over other people's buildings and they can still get to Kansas City in two or three turns if they want to do that. So I think the, the, the game length is dynamic in that, uh, experienced players are going to build more buildings, but they also know what they want to do and they're more efficient with their actions. Whereas novice players are going to stop at every building along the trail. But typically in those games, there are fewer buildings on the trail. So it kind of neutralizes that. But to, to your point, it just becomes a slower game as you progress. And um, for me, I find that the board is a, a huge table hog. So I hope you have a dining room table that can support this oh, game. Oh, it, it, it is not small. And that's even without the expansion, which adds to the size of the board as well. Yeah, you need a a good size table to be able to handle this game because you not only have the main board, but you also have the card displays that are off board. And then you have the player tableaus and you have to have room for the players to be able to have a discard as well as a draw deck and the whole nine yards there. I mean, there's stuff on every side of the board, right? You have the cow market at the bottom. You have the objective cards at the top. You have the workers on the left-hand side. I mean, just it's a huge – and you've got your player boards and all of your individual player buildings. It's just – it's a massive table space. Uh, I think that one of – two of the things that we talked about earlier that I think people like, but they could also very much dislike, and that is the obtuse scoring – not knowing how well you're doing as the game is progressing. Uh, I think that can be a turnoff for some. I know in my early plays, I thought I was playing great and I was blown away when I was getting stomped on. And I'm like, how is that possible? I thought I did everything I wanted to do in this game. How could I come out on the short end? And then obviously we talked about this too, pulling the wrong cow at the wrong time when you have no more neutral buildings to go to take an auxiliary action to cycle your hand is infuriating, no matter how many times you played the game. So I, yeah. I think both... 
I, I was just going to say that that any game that has a draw deck in it is going to have some aspect of that. And you have to know that coming in. But yeah, I mean, everybody, I mean, coming from a magic uh, background or anything else. Oh, well, I just didn't draw well. All right. Well, that sucks. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll bring up in terms of things that I don't necessarily or I don't like or people may not like is is the fact that um, you can put out tax buildings in front of certain critical areas on the board that just bleed other people dry. And what happens is they don't know it in the moment when they're giving you their one or two or three coins, uh, what impact that's having. But then they get to the destination they want to get to and they've got like seven bucks and they're at a hiring market where you can buy two workers and they can barely afford one. And I think it's it's easy to kind of get the air sucked out of your, uh, you know, your balloon later in the game when you realize, man, I'm not doing a whole lot of great combination turns here. And I can see this slipping away from me. There's kind of that almost like that 18 XX. I know I made a, a bad move two hours ago and now I'm paying the price for it. And I just have to play this out kind of feeling. Yeah. When I was going through the notes you made about the tax buildings, this is something that never even occurred to me. Do you want to expand? a little bit on that? Yeah. So obviously some of the buildings in the game that are private buildings you can place on the board have a green or a black hand. And depending on the player count, those are, those hands will cost other players either one or $2. In a two player As game, long as they have that money in hand, then they pay it. If they don't, they don't have to pay it, right? That's right. They can walk right through, which is why it's important to place tax buildings in the right spots. You want to place them where you know players are going to be walking through them because they either have to get through them or because it's early in the trail where they have cash. So if the hiring market is way down the end of the trail and you place a bunch of tax buildings early in the trail, people are going to cash out of Kansas City, come to the beginning of the trail with like 15 bucks. And by the time they get to where they really want to go, they've got like seven. Um, and so... Um, and there are strategies involved with placing buildings in certain spots and then moving in a different direction so that people have to go over your building, but you're going in a totally different area. Um, and so I think that that is something that doesn't really play out that much in casual play. But uh, when like I just had a game recently where a player kind of turned the table on me and did something that I taught him how to do. And so I said, OK, well, I'm going to do this then. And he said to me three quarters through the game, he said, you did all this stuff down here. I knew I was dead. So the last 45 minutes of the game, he knew he was just kind of going through the paces. Even though the scoring hadn't happened, it was pretty apparent how things were playing out. Yeah. I mean, the, the expansion actually makes that a lot more transparent because there's some buildings in the expansion that are just buku points. And you're looking at, wow, he's got 40 points of buildings on the board. Like, I've got five. And you know your hand of cows is not, you know, so it can be not a little bit deflating. The difference, right. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Okay, so I think to your point earlier in the discussion, you said you go to all these buildings and do things and it's fun because you're getting positive feedback. I think it's hard for players to stay focused. Um, I think you can be easily blinded by squirrel, you know, or yeah, I'm candy. Gonna... Ooh, yes. Yes. Right. And so I think uh, that's something that it's really hard to overcome after a few plays to say, oh, I really want to go there, but I know it's not in my best interest to do so. Uh, so um, that's something that I think people. That, that's what contributed to my having um, poor luck or poor success with this game and wondering why. It was because I was just kind of dabbling in a little bit of everything versus doing what I needed to do. 
And I think there's, I mean, it comes down to a discipline, right? To where are you trying to play the game really, really well? If so, you need to avoid some of this candy along the way and stay on target. Uh, So I find that really interesting. Um, Let's talk interaction a little bit, because to me, the game doesn't have a whole lot of it, yet you are adamant that the game has a lot more than meets the eye. So this is, again, that experiential gap between somebody that has far more plays about the game and in short succession and somebody who takes the game serious. And that's not uh, to a detriment. Don't get me wrong. It's just obviously in my shoes, I can't sit and study a game and be this involved in a game because just due to the nature of the show, time to move on to the next game, et cetera, et cetera. No, of course. But you sell me, tell me why you feel there's far more interaction in this game than what I see. Okay. So obviously this is not dominant species, right? I'm not going to knock you back. And, uh, but why I think it's a lot more interactive than people give it credit for is, is the, the board is very creatively designed in that, there are branching paths to get to every single neutral building except one. So building location D has only one access point to it. And there's an open spot right in front of that building. After you play it a few times, if you see that there is the hiring market placed in spot D or the cow market, if you're smart on your very first turn, you're going to go to the building location and you're going to build your own tax building right in front of there because people have to go through you to be able to do what they want to do throughout the game. It's and a choke point. It is. It's a, a, totally a choke point. Um, so if you build there and then you upgrade to the three tax building, if you're playing a four player game, I mean, imagine if you want to hire, the first hire is going to be a minimum $5. The second hire is going to be a minimum of seven. And that's if the ideal guys you want to buy are on the same row. And then imagine you have to pay $3 to somebody else just before you even get there. So you're talking about $15 just to hire two people. And that's in spot D. So you've probably gone through the trail a little bit and had to either, you know, spend some money with other tax buildings or go through a hazard or something like that. So um, I think it's how you plan out your turns. There's also a strategy that's called the Southern strategy that you would place a building at the top of the swamp right off the beginning of the trail. And then you'd build in the two spots down below at the at the end of the swamp. And ideally, you're trying to build buildings that on the first building, you can springboard into the next building, do the action on the next building, then springboard out of that building and keep going on the trail. So in essence, you get the ability to do three different buildings in one turn. And other players are never going to go that way because, A, they can't use your buildings and, B, they have to go through hazards to get there. But then if you build a tax building up top, now they've got to go through your building just to avoid your other stuff. So there's it's a there's a ton of ways that you can kind of get in people's way. The the interaction is indirect. Let's not be you know let's not pull punches, but it is there. And if you don't recognize it, you're going to lose. And that's fascinating to me because everything you just said makes total sense to me, and I can see it, but I never would have figured that out. So that's that's awesome. Uh, I appreciate you. Uh, yeah. And, and like you said, it's indirect, uh, interaction. And so I think when a lot of people think about interaction in games, a lot of it, people tend to think direct interaction, meaning 
using dominant species as an example, you know, whether it's positive or negative interaction, it's direct. Like I'm doing this and you are having the repercussion or I'm doing this and you are piggybacking on my action. But whereas here it's, it's indirect as you just described. So I think that's, I think that's uh that's eye opening a little bit and should be to a lot of folks that aren't as well versed in great Western trail as you are. I mean, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. There's a great video uh, on YouTube right now that was put out there about five months ago. It's a playthrough of the World Board Gaming Championship final weight Great Western Trail uh, tournament, 105 players. And what the what they did was they um, they videotaped the four finalists. It happens to be a father and his two kids versus a fourth player that wasn't related to them. That shows you how much this family must play this game. And, Seriously. <laughs> and then they, and then they overdubbed the commentary on what their thought process was in the moment in this turn. And the person who won the game didn't buy a single cow, never hired anybody but a builder. And a lot of people feel like the builder strategy is underpowered in the base game without the expansion. And that's just not the case. And so to see it play out in real time and hear the thought process of the people who actually played that game is a great watch. It's a two and a half hour video, but it does not drag and it is not boring. So I highly encourage people to check that out if, if they want to get next level depth. Good stuff, man. So the last two things on the negative side of the docket, if you will, that I'll bring up is, and we kind of touched on everything already, is the randomness of you know, the various draws, whether it's the employee draws or whether it's the draw from the top of your deck, right? Um, that can be limiting and frustrating. And the last thing is, what about the repetitive nature of the game? The Doing the same thing round and round, even though people are building buildings and the board is a little bit more dynamic, you're putting out TPs, you're putting out hazards, people are building buildings, et cetera, et cetera. But Orbit after orbit around the map, it's just same thing over and over again. That's where I think the expansion also helps a bit. I don't feel that personally, but I'm heavily biased towards this game. So I can see that now that you've brought it up. Um, you're right, but it depends on the strategy you're using. If you're using a builder strategy, you only have one building in the game to which you can build. Now, you can get that auxiliary build action if you place your fourth craftsman on your player board or your sixth craftsman, but there's only one building that you can go to and build a building, and there's no private building in the game that allows you to do that, unlike the cow market, where you can put your own private cow market out. So for the builder player, every time around the board, it's different because they're doing different actions because theoretically they're building up to a crescendo later in the game. So for, for that, that's very exciting. Now, if you're a cow player and all you're doing every time is going to the cow market, buying a five cow and then just moseying on down the trail, I could see how that would get stale, but that's not typically how I play the game. All right. Fair enough. Good stuff. All right, let's move on. Let's talk scalability. So we, both of us have played it across the entire player count. And the two player game, the game, it plays quicker at two players while the job market scales, the path does not. So it doesn't feel like the game scaled a lot. But again, coming at it from my point of view, there wasn't a ton of interactivity or player interaction as is. So I don't feel like the game suffered for it at the lower player count. But obviously you're seeing much more interaction. So how do you feel about that? 
I like it at two players, and I know people who that's their preferred player count. But for me, um, the one thing I don't like about the two-player game is that it gimps some of the strategies. So when you're playing two players, black hands and green hands are both worth $2. So if you want to employ what I just called the southern strategy, which is putting a building out just next to the, the A spot on the neutral player board and then building the two neutral spots or the empty spots by the swamp, to get to those buildings and execute the the one cert pump and the two dollars to discard a one cow, you've got to walk through hazards. If you're walking through four hazards in a four player game, you're probably spending five bucks to do it, and maybe you get four of it back by discarding the cards. So it's okay because you want the cert pumps and you want the building abilities. But in a two player game, if you're walking through four hazards to get to buildings that are going to give you four dollars, spending eight bucks, right? You know, it's just not worth it. So. To your point, you don't really want to do that strategy, and there's fewer buildings on the board. So I agree with you. I find a two-player experience to be less fulfilling. I do think you can manage the clock better in a two-player game um, because there's not other players to worry about what they're going to put out, TP or Cowboy or whatever. Um, But I I do think that, um, for me, the four-player game is the best just because one player or two players have to fight over a certain strategy for heads. Uh, either two people are going to do cows or two people are going to do engineers or something, but there's always a competition for that. In a three-player game, uh, hey, you take cowboys, I'll take craftsmen, this guy will take engineers. Uh, it's a little bit freeing. So it, it's tighter, and I agree, it's tighter at four players than it is with anything else. But And you mentioned that the the play length was arguably negligible between the three and four-player game, whereas for me it's a bigger disparity between player counts just because again, we're playing much more tactically and we're not playing this all the time. So there is that whole, our turns are just slower by default. Sure. Take it with a grain of salt. My experience is that there's about a 20 minute difference between the three, four, three and four player counts, but I know that might not be the norm for everybody. All right. Fair enough. All right. So let's go ahead and break out rails to the North, the expansion. So I've played it a couple times. You've played it four times and you've played it across the entire player count. Let's start out with my point of view that it's exciting in that it adds new cool stuff to be able to play around with. And again, because I'm coming at this at a far more tactical level than you are to where, oh, I can go ahead and try the new candy and it doesn't necessarily negatively impact me as much as it would somebody that's looking at a much more in-depth hierarchy strategy. So my plays of this game overall have found that there's no reason I wouldn't want to play with Rails to the North because it adds all this other stuff to the game. Whereas you have a bit of a slightly different opinion on this because, well, I don't want to speak for you. Go for it. I really like what the expansion brings to the game. Um, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I totally dislike the expansion. My comments are completely tailored to my personal play experiences. Overall, what the expansion does that I find to be great is instead of planning one turn ahead of where you're going to deliver, like in the base game, I'm going to deliver to, uh, you know, Albuquerque this turn and I'm going to go to St. Louis next turn. You're, you're, you kind of know what you can do based on what's in your deck um, or how you can get your certificates pushed. 
Um, in the expansion, you're not planning one turn ahead. You're planning four turns ahead at the very beginning of the game. Okay, I'm going to try to get to Denver. That's going to unlock a black disc, and that's going to free me up to go to Minneapolis or Green Bay or Toronto or some of the big point cities up in the Northeast. Um, so you have to have this overarching, I'm going to do this. When I take the expansion out of play now, the base game feels simplistic in that regard. It feels like I'm just going around the rondelle and every turn is an isolated turn around the rondelle and now I've got to reset and think about what I want to do on these next three or four actions versus with the expansion in play, now I'm thinking 10 12 turns ahead. Where am I going to go with these cows? What cows will I have at that point? Am I going to build a deck? Am I not going to build a deck? Am I going to be able to even get to these cities even if I lay out branchlets? Where am I going to take my auxiliary actions to get those branchlets out? I think the depth of strategic long-term planning is greatly enhanced by the expansion. So I love it for from that aspect. My critiques of the expansion, we'll get to here in a little bit, are unique to how the strategies are executed with certain elements of this of the expansion in play go for it no you're on a roll keep going okay so i think there's a general consensus by most people who play this game that the builder that the strategy builders is underpowered right and un- have- underpowered in the base game right and right. and i i won't necessarily disagree with that if you look at the maximum point values for some of the higher level buildings you're getting like nine points uh, you still should be trying to get between 35 and 45 points in buildings if you're taking that strategy, but it's fragile, right? It can be very easily implemented or, or messed with by other players. So I think a lot of people feel like it's underpowered because they see cows and, and engineers just dominating. But in reality, if you're able to do what you want to do with a builder strategy, it's actually the most powerful strategy in the base game. So what I think... Um, Uh, Alexander Fisser did with the expansion here was cater to people who feel like the builder strategy is underpowered and he kind of made it a little bit more freeing. So there's a lot of reasons why I think that uh, the, the expansion kind of doesn't work for me. The first is it was really difficult to play the builder strategy with the base game and not deliver to get a negative point value by connecting to those cities where if you're have one token on two, you're going to have on both sides, you get negative points, right? Yeah. Yes. And because because an engineer or a craftsman strategy is not going to be able to get to San Francisco, they're just not going to have the cows. So it was always kind of like, oh, I'm really I don't I want I got to drive draw the right card at the right time to really do what I want to do. And there was kind of a little bit of luck involved there. And you could easily be thwarted. Now, if you lay branchlets ahead of time. You're going to be able to go to Memphis. You're going to be able to go to Columbia. You're going to be able to go to Denver and not really have to deck build at all. Okay. So, and especially if you go to Memphis, Memphis has no delivery costs and it gives you two bucks and an objective card, which might synergize with what you're doing anyways. And the extra two bucks is huge because on your first or second turn, you you might be delivering for six and then you get two more. That's $8. That's actually quite good early game. Most people who are doing the builder strategy are going to Kansas City on the first turn. That thankfully has been changed from negative six points to deliver there in the base game to negative eight in the expansion because people were going there two or three times in the base game if they were doing a builder strategy and then just you need that capital to build your buildings, right? So I think that's a nice change. But now I feel like as long as I can get to Chicago, which is a six level city, then I can branch either to the left and go to you know Denver or San Francisco or some of those, or I can branch to the right and go to Minneapolis, Green Bay. So there's a lot more liber- liberating freedom of what I can do as a builder. Flexibility, good way to put it. Yes. 
Yes. And that, and I think that's most people are going to really want that in the expansion. They're going to be, this is great. I can kind of plan this all out. For me, it felt too easy to kind of do what I wanted to do. Like it took away that tightness that I thought the base game had for me. Um, the, the additional buildings that they put into the game, uh, they added a 25 point building 11 a, and they added a, another building. I forget which number it is, but it's, it scores based on how many bells you've shown on your personal player board when you're laying branchlets. Um, 25 points is just a huge amount of points. Um, I almost don't want to play with that building in play because it's, it's not that hard to get it in play if you're playing a builder with the expansion. And here's why. On the board, there are six medium town tiles, and they are blue, and you have an instant benefit when you go to those medium towns. Nobody can block you. It's just you place a branch in that town, and you instantaneously execute that action. The three major ones in there are you can either get $5 or a three cow from the market. You can move your train three spots. You can kill two cows from your hand. All of those are nice, but all of those are, for the most part, situational, and I think they're useful for all strategies. But the one tile that allows you to build a building for free is huge for the builder. Um, A builder can time that to when they execute it, and they're always going to time it when they have five or six craftsmen on their player board. And then, boom, I can put a level six building out for nothing. Or I can take my level six and upgrade it to a 12, which is what that new expansion building is. And I've just gone from nine points or whatever it is, eight points to 25. So in one fell swoop, I've saved $12 on building costs because it's free. I've gotten 14 victory points by placing it on the board. And now I have a new action spot that I can go to that's super powerful, which is take a hazard off the board for $2. And usually the hazards at that point of the game, there's a bunch of fours out there. So you're getting four victory points for two bucks. And there's really nothing in the game that has that kind of victory points for spending ratio other than going all the way at the end of the trail with your train and ringing the bell where you pay $3 to get nine points. And then you can move all the way back to another station and instantaneously do that one too. So I I just find that in my four plays, in a couple of them, it's been situational and it's been laid out for a builder strategy right from the start. In others, I've tried to overcome the the initial layout and play a builder. And in every case, I kind of have felt like I could do what I wanted to. There's enough time in the game to get those branchlets out no matter where those tokens are. Even if they're all the way out in the corner by Montreal – you can still get there with plenty of time and execute it when you want to. And boom, you've got, four, I got in one game with the station master tile to synergize with what I was doing. I got 65 points from my buildings. It's like drop the mic game over. So it removed a lot of the tension you're saying for me, but I, I I've seen a lot of feedback on BGG by people who are like, this finally balances the builder in my group. Now I have a third viable strategy to thwart my cowboy heavy player in my group and, and people love it. And I'm not going to begrudge that. I think for the average player who plays this a couple times a year, they're going to be like, oh, I can do this. This is great. Because they're going to make mistakes along the way that when they do those good moves, those, those combo-ish moves, they're going to feel really rewarded by it. And it's going to you know keep them on an even keel with the other players. But if you really know what you're doing and you're minimizing your mistakes – you're going to be able to make your last three to five turns super powerful if you're playing a builder strategy. And unless there's somebody else at the table who knows exactly what you're doing and is kind of replicating what you're doing, then it's it's kind of hard to overcome that. Another thing I'll critique the expansion for is um, when in the base game you had six auxiliary actions or five um, and they're all really interesting, right? Move your train back to pump your certs or move your train forward to get into a station, cycle your hand, um, 
you know, uh, in your deck, get money. Okay. And I find that with the expansion, the only auxiliary actions that you should be taking are branching out in the north or taking the money. Because a lot of times the first person to get to a small town or to a station or whatever gets a benefit for doing that. So there's like a race element to it. And why would you cycle your deck and spend an auxiliary action or a double auxiliary action to do that when you can just branch out and that naturally cycles your deck because you're getting rid of two cows in order to do it. So that that too, I think, kind of favors the builder as well because they're going to have a lot of twos in their hand because they're not putting threes, fours, and fives into it. So statistically, they're going to have a better chance of doing a double auxiliary action when they reach a a auxiliary building versus a cowboy-heavy player who's going to get there and say, man, I got a four, a five, a three, and two twos that are unique. I don't really want to get rid of these twos to branch out. What if I get a one or two ones, or I, I kind of nerf my big delivery here so, but the builder or the engineer doesn't care about that because they know they're going to pull back in another two or another one. And it's, you know, they're really going to be, their delivery is going to be dependent on where they put their certificates because you can kind of, and plus the exchange tokens are in the game now. You have these blue exchange tokens where at any time on your turn, you can spend one to bring two cards into your hand and get two out. There is one station master tile where it incentivizes you to keep those in hand. But in reality, that that tension of, oh, I'm right before Kansas City. Am I going to draw the cow I really need? You can kind of control that a little bit easier now. by and, and you can easily branch out into that one area in the top left-hand corner of the expansion board and just get another token if you need one. So that that last bit is something that we also have experienced. So out of all of this, I can completely relate to the fact that being able to turn through your deck like that and having that flexibility to be able to do so removed a lot of the tension of those draws, exactly like what you just said. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, again, I think that the expansion is really great for what you're trying to do, uh, where you're going to go on future turns. Another critique I'll have of it for certain strategies, though, is the the Cowboy always wanted to get to San Francisco to deliver multiple times there and get the nine points each time they were going there. And it was not hard to do that if they were building a fairly big hand of cows. In this game, uh, there are some new additions to the board that give you big points like Montreal, I think is 20 points and New York is 18 and you get a station master or New York is three points, but you get a station master tile, which could really synergize with what you've been doing throughout the game. And by the time you can get to New York, you kind of fairly well know which one of those four you're going to want. Um, but there are also, uh, three cities that are of 14 delivery or less green Bay, Minneapolis, and, uh, Toronto where, a cowboy, uh, a craftsman or an engineer player can get 19 victory points from delivering to those three cities. And it is not hard for a craftsman player to get a delivery of 14. All they have to do is get one three cow in their hand early in the game. And then the branchlet action naturally is going to cycle their deck. And oh, by the way, there's now a token in the game that lets a, a craftsman player go branch out and immediately get a three cow from the market without taking that action, having to go to that building to get that cow. And so it saves them an entire turn, right? Exactly. So the, the craftsman player does not want to go to the cow market and have to do that. It is a powerful move early in the game because they get that cow that diversifies their hand. 
but they really don't want to do that because every action is valuable. Now they can just branch out on the natural neutral building that gives a double auxiliary, place a branchlet in that, grab the three Kyle, boom, it's in my deck and I'm off to the races. This is amazing stuff, dude. This is, this is good stuff. I appreciate. And this is why I wanted to have you on the show was for exactly this type of insight that let's face it, that we're not able to normally provide for the simple fact that we're not able to play the, uh, a game as many times as you have, or last episode with Gorov. So good stuff. So overall, I would say it all comes down to it's group dependent on whether or not the expansion adds to the game. Whereas for us, and like when we streamed it, everybody agreed. Yeah. There's no reason we would ever play without this because it adds all this stuff with very low rules overhead. It just doesn't, there's no reason not to. Whereas on somebody like you, it completely, even though it adds to the strategic depth, that long-term planning, it very much, alters the amount of tension that's in the game yeah it's a it i'm i now have a greater long-term planning of where i'm going to deliver in future rounds but at the same time i feel like i have to play a certain strategy to do that uh every other strategy feels less efficient to me and therefore not as viable and that's just me now my group everybody loves this game but most people play it two or three times a year i have a big group so it hits the table a lot but it's always different people for the most part there's one other guy in my group who plays it as much as i do and loves it as much as i do and he played it with me two players and it was really a test run i said hey i'm going to be doing this review play it at two players i need to get that player count in and you know the game better than anybody and we finished the game and he turned to me and he goes yeah i'm not so sure about this um he didn't really love it. And so my thoughts are with people who play this a lot, I think that they feel like it changes some of the strategies in a way that's artificial. Okay. Fair enough. That's, that's really, really helpful for folks. So well done, Evan. Good stuff. Well, I, I love this game. So I, I mean, I still enjoy playing with the expansion. I will never turn out a play of it, but I am not the norm here. I would definitely play this game without the expansion. This is not an instant addition for me in my plays. Perfect. All right. So moving on comments from BGG. Now this is the majority of these obviously are going to be a lot more coming from folks with my experience background, as opposed to somebody like Evan. So keep that in mind. So here we go. Some of these are pretty long, but I think they, they bring a lot. So here we go. I found this a steep learning curve, but I can suffer from AP and there's a lot going on. It's a busy deck engine building game, racing the trail, train track, buildings, employees, etc. You need to specialize in a few races rather than a smattering of everything. And although I initially thought it was very tactical, last game I discovered the strategic layer that my monkey mind had missed in earlier plays. I finally took my own advice and focused on racing the train side bonuses, building an engine to feed those which worked out well. I had initially thought the game was quite solitaire, with the main interaction from building placement and the tension coming from your own card draw rather than the other player's schemes. But now that I've got to grips with it, I'm looking forward to more interaction and will start looking up from my player board a bit more. Got to make this a 10. I've held off upgrading this to the highest accolade because one of the three main strategies seems very underpowered, but it doesn't spoil the experience at all, and I'm always excited to play this one. So I find this interesting that 
he is starting to talk about the strategic elements in the interaction, but still feels that the builder strategy, which I assume he's intimating, is underpowered. So somewhere in between me and you. So I find yes. this interesting. All right, yeah, next I mean, one. Oh, go ahead. Nope, nope. No, go ahead. no, no. I I think that that's standard for this game. I think so too. Okay, should have enjoyed it more, but I didn't. There's some interesting bits, but for the work I put into it, I would have expected to feel some advancement as the game progressed, but I didn't. Felt like I was solving the same puzzle, but with more obstructions. I mean, you and Greg talked about how the first player to carry on usually doesn't go well. Um, and I can see that with this, like it's a big time investment and the payoff is, is what, you know, um, it, 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 it's a slow burn for me. It wasn't, but I think can see how it could be for other players. Yep. Yep. I, th- exactly. Alexander Fister wasn't on my radar until I played great Western trail. I enjoyed the game, but it felt very crowded. There were too many things to try and keep track of. After more plays, I grew to appreciate how the different mechanics were interwoven how pulling one lever adjusted something else over there, how focusing on buildings meant the herds you deliver weren't going to be as lucrative, how focusing on herds meant you weren't making as much progress along the track and thus paying more in delivery fees. The game really opened up to me. More importantly, each time I played was highly enjoyable and I look forward to playing it again, and I still do. I feel like there's been a trend for the past few years of creating games that are increasingly complex versions of multiplayer solitaire. I do my thing, you do yours, and at the end of the game, we'll see who did it better. Scoring can be very opaque until the end of the game. The enjoyment of games like that is figuring out the efficiencies and realizing some are better than others, and by then, you're done with the game and ready to move on to the next title. Great Western Trail has a fantastic balance between pursuing my own goals and still being able to meaningfully interact with the other players. And while it doesn't have an explicit scoring track, there are indicators to show how well you, as well as the other players, are doing. These dynamics make every game a tense, thrilling affair. The game also scales reasonably well, with the exception of tightness. There are spaces on the board for players to build their tiles. Two-player game, the board is simply expansive. Three-player game is close, but comfortable. A four-player game is vicious. I enjoy the game at all player counts, but it does have a different flavor at each, and I've been loving it for over two years. I don't expect that to change. Yeehaw. Yep. Can't can't disagree with that. All right, last one. It's another long one. I'm going to give this game the most backhanded compliment I've ever given. This is likely the best terrible game that I've ever played. It's terrible because it's complete, It's incredibly overwrought, which adds immense breath, but little depth. This breath makes the game a complete slog to teach, 40 minutes from a great teacher, but then, at its heart, an incredibly simple game. This is the purest example of everything as well as the kitchen sink that I can think of. It's terrible because the game can take almost three hours, but there's never once a feeling of ebb and flow or drama because it's almost impossible to tell who is the, in the lead at any given time because everything gets you victory points. So whose multitude of victory points are higher at any given time? Shrug. Though I guess it really doesn't matter because there's nothing you can do to really affect other players, which brings me to... It's terrible because I've played few other games that offer so little player interaction. This is multiplayer solitaire at its worst. 
You could literally play the entire game with only a rare glance at what other people are doing and do just fine. That's forgivable in a game that takes 60 minutes or less, but not so here. It's terrible because I was excited to play the game with this unique theme of driving cattle, but the theme just does not come through. This is how the players talk during the game. Okay, I moved two spaces. I'm going to stop here, convert this black card into two coins. My second action allows me to do an auxiliary action, so I draw two cards. Draws two cards. And discard these two. Yeehaw. The most frustrating thing is I can see sparkles of a great game nestling within this steaming cow patty. This could have been a fun family game if the designer or publisher just said, whoa, and rein things in a bit. As is, though, I can't imagine this game having much longevity. There's a reason why Kinesia Classics had legs. Modern game design needs to look back a little further for its influences. To me, Great Western Trail is the epitome of what is wrong with post-Agricola Euro games. And this is interesting to me that while I don't necessarily agree before having gone through this process with you, Evan, while I don't necessarily agree with all that, I can at least understand where he was coming from. Now, having gone through this, I see how shallow this is. And this is obviously over a few number of plays and that this is a game that going back to that whole discussion that we've had in numerous reviews requires work to be able to really see what the game has to offer. And a lot of players nowadays simply are not willing to put in that amount of work to be able to find that enjoyment and that level of depth that the game obviously has, but that not all of us have seen before or seen yet. Oh, no, I totally agree. I mean, I, I don't discredit this person's opinion whatsoever. Uh, and I think what he's saying about Great Western Trail could be said about a lot of games, right? I mean, in today's hobby, oh, I just got my new Kickstarter. I want to play it. That was fun. Let's go on to the next thing. I think the depth in a lot of these games is only revealed after four, five, six, eight plays. But do you want to put the time investment to learn the game, the iconography, the rules for something that, whether it's the theme, whether it's the mechanisms, just doesn't, isn't your jam? I've done that with plenty of games. And I I know I have panned games that um, I said, oh, you know, I don't like this game. This is very boring or it's very simplistic. And then a year later, somebody breaks it out on the table and I play it. And because I've grown as a gamer, because my tastes have evolved, now all of a sudden I'm like, wow, this game is totally what I forgot. I didn't even remember it being like this. And or the or the complexity or the weight of a game comes down because you're far more further along in your experience with just these hobby games. And I, I agree with you that I don't discredit and I don't say that he's wrong, but from his point of view, this is what the game offers. But that goes to show that this is, and honestly, this is why I try and play a game a whole bunch or at least a number of times, say minimum four times before we review it to be able to start to get into that depth and show what kind of longevity a game like this would have. But even so, sometimes there are games that even at that number of plays, you still are still just scratching the surface and you might not realize that there are more layers there that even, you know, four or five, six plays can even provide or that can show you. 
I mean, we didn't once use the term fiddly for this game, but this game is fiddly as hell with rules Agreed. and bits and all kinds of stuff. And if you're a big Reiner Knizia fan and you're a Tigerson Euphrates player or something like that, you you should hate this game, right? Like the overhead required to even just get into this game is immense. And overall is a good way yeah. to, to put it that from some people's point of view, right? And again, I, I like I like Knizia's games plenty fine. I have plenty of plenty of them in my collection, but I just for me, I think it was the theme got me in and I was willing to overcome or overlook the shortcomings of this game to get into the depth of the game. Whereas I think people who are either cult of the new or it doesn't work for them, maybe rondels or maybe action uh, hand management, like a great example and not disparaging the stream of this um, a couple months ago when Jess was like, I don't like deck builders. Um, and she, and she, you know, made a comment about this game. She didn't like it because she doesn't like deck builders. I think this is not a deck builder whatsoever. There is deck building in it. It's almost like saying, is Rococo a a deck builder? I don't think it is. I think it has deck building in it, but you don't, in Rococo, you have to do it more than you do here, but you can totally avoid deck building in this game and make it work. So, but would you know that after a first play? Exactly. And that's what I was just going to say to where there's no way that you, because, oh, Okay, so let's stop and think about this. Great Western Trail, the premise is you are bringing a herd of cows to ship them off, right, and to sell them to market or however you want to present that. So that means I should get higher value cows to be able to make more money in Kansas City. And I'm talking just surface level. This is what your your default assumptions of this game would be. So therefore... Yeah, I'm going to go to the market. I'm going to get more cows, i.e. build my deck to then be able to churn through my deck to be able to get higher value cows to be able to make more money in Kansas City. 100%. That's what you would think. But like you just said, you can completely skip that aspect of the game and do great in this game. No? No, absolutely. Yeah, so that's fascinating to me to where there are ways to play this game which are impossible to know without having experienced this game a number of times. So it's just really, really interesting that I'll be honest, coming into this review, I had no idea about most of what it is that you actually talked about. I knew there were various strategies, but not to the depth of what these are and mind blown. And so now I got, I got to be honest that I'm, I'm paranoid. I mean, I review games for a living and, and stream games for a living. And all of a sudden I'm like, am I doing a disservice having only played these games like four or five times, but realistically it's impossible with the, with the schedule of the show to be able to get more plays in than that, to be able to review these games. But it just goes to show that these even as we as we mentioned what they were earlier, you know, call it a medium, medium, heavy euro, this, that there's a lot more hidden depth here than at first blush. And if you go through the comments on BGG, that's far more prevalent than where you are in this game, Evan. And I find that just really eye-opening and 
exciting yet a little bit scary that how many other games are like that that don't have that level on the surface but oh my and by surface i mean four five six seven ten plays until you start seeing this stuff yeah so i i really wouldn't worry about that because two two thoughts there one i don't think your audience is going to want a three-hour podcast every time you review a game. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I'm going to be honest two, with the you. The last two have yes. been pretty, uh, pretty in-depth, but getting arguably expert-level uh, guest hosts on this, I think, brings this to a certain level to where, I don't know, I'm curious. I'm curious what the feedback's going to be on this, in all honesty. Well, uh, that was my next point. A game like Great Western Trail that is unis- universally beloved, top 10 BGG game, which is exactly what Through the Ages is too, that has an audience that probably thirsts for this kind of discussion. Whereas Fortify Plays for a Nippon, no offense to Nippon, it's not going to have the audience that really, they're just going to, do I want to buy this game, right? They're not going to need that strategic depth because they haven't played it four or five times. But these games are, in most people's collections, are highly rated on BGG. People, even people that don't love point salad or kitchen sink euros like this game in some form or fashion. So you kind of have to decide, well, what's the game I'm reviewing and what level of depth does it deserve? Because I think the audience will kind of want to hear this, even if the game has been out for three years. Fair enough. And I think as these games get older and they have a longer track record, I think there's going to be a, a point, a, a place and time for reviews like this. So no, I think uh, I think this is this is awesome. This is good stuff. So that said, you want to go ahead and give a summary, sir? Of course, this is the one part of the prep I did not do at all. So I don't have anything pre-canned. For me, Great Western Trail is why we play board games. Uh, it's loved by my group. It's constantly desired to be hit hitting the table. Uh, my wife likes it. My group likes it. I find something to explore in the game every time I play it. I never try to play it the same way twice. I'm always trying to get different buildings out and see how does this work with that building. Uh, so there's there's a depth and there's an exploration there that um, I'm sure other games have, but for whatever reason, they just haven't. I haven't had the desire to peel the onion back with those like I have with this game. Um, so for me, I mean, if if I, I just find this game to be completely enthralling thematically. I, I like the aesthetics of it. It's just, it's why I play board games. So. I really enjoyed every one of my plays of great Western trail, but that's now coming at it from a much more tactical point of view than somebody like Evan has come at this game. And I don't have the deep seated love for this game for the simple fact that it hasn't grabbed me like it has others but that's not to diminish the quality of the game and i think that this game also does require some amount of work to be able to appreciate and to get to that depth that a lot of people are not willing to put in myself included i don't ever see myself putting in the amount of work that a game like this would require for me to get good enough at this game to be able to be competitive at a higher level but that's not that's not a dig at at the game that's that's more just a realistic view of this isn't the game for me 
but that's not to say that this isn't a really good game. So yeah, great Western trail. Uh, enjoy it. Don't love it. So as far as a rating goes, we rate on a one to six scale, no halved numbers. So it's either above average, i.e. four or higher, or it's not. So one, burn it with fire, six being a hall of fame and everything else falls in between. I have a feeling I know where this falls for you, Evan, but I don't want to presume. So you being the guest, your honor, sir. Sure. If you had asked me two weeks ago, I would have said the base game is definitively a six for me, given that there's only one game in my collection of any near weight that I played as many times as this, and that's Arkham Horror, the LCG. That's a totally different animal. Um, But after I played the expansion, I thought, well, you know, this adds a lot to the game. Maybe, maybe the base game is a five now in hindsight because of all the depth that the expansion brings from a planning perspective long term. Um, And I thought, but, but I identified flaws in the expansion right away. So my initial thought here was base game five, expansion five, combination six. Because I can't give Great Western Trail anything but a six. But after playing it more, I realized that the base game for me is a six. I like the tension of the base game. I like uh, everything about the base game. It's a six. Uh, I view the expansion now to be a four uh, for me. It is a good expansion. It adds a lot to the game, but it's not something I would prefer to play with all the time. I think most people would rate Great Western, most people that like Great Western Trail would rate Great Western Trail a five and would rate the the expansion, the icing on the cake that brings Great Western Trail to a six. And I can't disparage that view. But for me, that's just not what I share. I think that's an excellent way to put this. And it's... this is going to basically exemplify our difference of viewpoints on this game to where for me, great Western trail is a good game. I enjoy it, but I don't think it's anything exceptional. However, I feel like the hidden depth that this going through this process has shown me brings it up higher. However, the other negatives, which this might sound trivial to some folks, but kind of like what we talked about with Trickerian, the fact that it's a massive table hog, the fact that it has a fairly involved setup and teardown time, and that helps prevent it from hitting the table as often as it arguably should, kind of works against it. So for me, Great Western Trail, the base game I have is a four. Whereas for me, because of everything that the expansion adds to the game, you know, that, that variable path and the, the candy, as we, as we discussed earlier, I feel like that adds to it. And there's no reason that I would want to play Great Western Trail without the expansion. So the expansion for me would bring the whole game up to a five as a, you know, really good, you know, arguably excellent game but it's funny how different our opinions of this based on our experiences meaning our experience level and the depth to which we've gone into this game can can view this game fairly differently and i think that's fascinating dude that's really really cool well it wouldn't make for good radio if we both rated a six now would it a fair point but it's still <laughs> nonetheless i i really this has been our i would say this has been the most eye-opening review i've ever done on this show 
Well, I, I appreciate that. I've had a lot of conversations with other herd members about this game, and I think some people are starting to uh, um, awaken to the hidden depth of this game as well. And it's funny how it takes sometimes three years for that to be revealed. And again, I give credit to that video that's on YouTube. If you watch that, you'll I think it puts it in a lot different perspective. Good stuff. So that, folks, is our review of Great Western Trail as well as the expansion railways to the north. Evan? That was fantastic, dude. I, uh, wow. Well done. Seriously. I, I really, really enjoyed this. I, I did too, but you'll probably never invite me back. <laughs> Given I, how long this took. <laughs> not at all. No, no, quite the opposite. I think there's going to be other games where I think this is going to be warranted. And I think this is going to, uh, to really turn some folks onto a game that they may have either overlooked or discounted what this game provides and other folks i think are going to listen to this saying i can appreciate that but yeah no thanks which okay play what you dig right no i agree to sum it up i had a great time and uh, it was a lot of fun well i appreciate it man and before we get out of here for everybody out there listening if you enjoy the show there are two really really great things that you can do First and foremost, spread the word. Tell a friend about the show and just spread the word. First and foremost, that. The second thing is head on over to pledgehc.com and take a look at ways you can support the show. It It's something that I do. It takes a lot of hours and I think it's worth supporting, but obviously you guys need to make your own decisions. I really would appreciate the support. So check it out over at pledgehc.com. That said, Evan, awesome. How can folks uh, get in touch with you? You said you were over on Twitter, right? Uh, yeah, I'm just at Evan Scussel on Twitter, and I'm going top shelf on BGG, but that's the only place you're going to find me. I'm All right. Uh, no, no worries. Spell your last name so folks can uh, find you on Twitter. It's S as in Sam, C-U-S-S-E-L. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Evan, thanks for uh, hanging out for the last few hours. And dude, I was tired before this started. I am invigorated. I am excited. Now, damn you, I want to get Great Western Trail back to the table. So well done, <laughs> yeah. man, I guess. I'm in the same boat. It's 1.30 here. And thankfully, I get to work from home on Wednesday so I can sleep in an extra hour. Good. All right. Well, great job. Take care, everybody. We'll catch you all in a couple weeks. See ya. See ya.